and gentlemen, welcome to Bomb by Numbers. Thanks for joining us here for this tie-in episode. Uh, we decided to do a back-to-back tie-in episode, didn't we, Josh, for two of the most recent films that we've reviewed? We did, yeah. So we, so you've enjoyed your helping of From Russia of Love. So here have a helping of Moonraker. Mm-hmm. Moonraker. Now this film, unlike From Russia with Love, which by now you probably have figured out if you listened to that episode where we talked about Not a great adaptation. Uh, that was a good adaptation, but Moonraker is not, with the exception of a couple of features in the story, uh, the name of the villain, the idea of a rocket, and a couple of other things like like trying to use the, um, the what, the, the vent or the, the afterburn you, crematorium yeah the afterburn crematorium with the exception of that Drive stuff in all his munificence <laughs> not not a lot to to go by the book moonraker which of course we mentioned very briefly in our film episode is about this figure of um i was about to say arnold Bax, but he's a british composer of uh, hugo drax <laughs> hugo drax um who who is actually a uh, well do you want to talk he about was him? German uh, he was he a was German commando. He was part of that. Mm-hmm. He was part of that team uh, during the Battle of the Balls that disguised themselves as uh, um, Allied officers. Mm-hmm. And of course, when he was injured, uh, he was rescued, and people mistook him for a an Allied officer. And he then created this amnesia story, rebuilt an identity for himself, uh, and a steel empire. And a steel empire. That's well, not just steel empire. Uh, he he got into all sorts of Aer- things. Aeronautics. Uh-huh, aeronautics. Uh, and Ballistic missiles. And he was a patron of the arts and charities and all sorts of different things. And a cheat. And a very big cheat, which, of course, is what motivates the story. That's the motivating incident of the entire plot, which Josh and I, of course, go into in our in our book review. It is kind of dated, isn't it, the, the narrative? It is kind of dated. Shooting a rocket at, uh, like, at, you might as well just say, left, like, shooting a laser beam at Metropolis, because that's mm-hmm. basically what this story was. <laughs> kind of. But it had more to do with, you know, the characterization of Drax. And I think Drax was probably the first big Bond villain, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, I guess he could say he was the first one, because if you have, like, you know, we have Le Chief in Casino Royale. Mr. Big, maybe, but he was kind of, he wasn't, he was kind of an ambiguous character in mm-hmm. Live and Let Die. Yeah, he was. And he was very much behind the scenes. Drax is very much in front here in this film and this story. And you'll see that. Yeah, we, yeah. we think you'll see that. So much like... And he we, has those, those traits of the Fleming villain too, like the, 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 you know, his hairiness and his almost dwarf-like, but not stature. But then you also have his sucking his thumb and everything mm-hmm. like that. That's so. right. There are some really neat, um, really neat idiosyncrasies to the character that Fleming likes to hang on. And, you know... Um, I remember, Josh, when we reviewed this book together, I didn't like it as much as you did, I don't believe, if I recall Mm -hmm. correctly. Um, But it's since then, I think my attitude's changed a bit. Uh, One of the things I didn't like about it so much is how it stayed still in one location. But that was something that you called it out for. I thought it was quite strong, the way that it it, it pictured, you know, the the south of England and all of that stuff. You quite liked that. St. Margaret's Bay, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Kent, yeah. Mm -hmm. You liked all that stuff. I did. I, I think but that's maybe, my own personal perspective. I of mean, course, yeah. But I, yeah. I might, I might do a reread on this one because I've had a couple of feelings, and maybe, you know, maybe I, I was a little hard on this first time around, and particularly listening for the sake of presenting it here on Bond by Numbers, listening to the show recently, that episode, and and just editing it for uh, for presentation. I feel like maybe it is a much better book than I gave it credit for at the time. I mean, it, it certainly didn't find its way down the bottom of Fleming's 14. I think it was middle of the road for me, middle of the pack, maybe somewhere around 7th or 8th overall. Can't entirely remember where. A little bit higher on your list, though. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think this is actually probably a better book than I might have uh, talked about at the time. But 
might be one I might reread again soon, actually. Yeah, I think I'm enjoying you in that. Every now and then I like picking a, a Fleming novel to go and reread just, you know, just for the fun of it. Just to keep it fresh, yeah. Absolutely. And you got to love the travel log and the, and, and the scenery descriptions. Fleming's great at that. So Yeah, he certainly like is. Those, yeah. I like those little vignettes that he puts in there. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, we, we hope you enjoy this one as well. Uh, like we said with From Russia With Love, this is going to be our second full literary gun barrel feature um, where we can. Now, I think we'll decide to release these episodes in full instead of sort of mixing them together and putting them in like a little amalgam stew for you guys. We'll, That's right. Uh, we'll, give, we'll give you some full episodes. and Also, it allows us to do a little bit of uh, promotion for the next episode of uh, Bomb by Numbers, sure which does. is going to be Die Another Day. Die Another uh, because- Day. Because we have some facts about Gala Brand, who is the female companion of Bond in, in the novel Moonraker. See, we'll see how she relates to Die Another Day next show. That's right. So if you think there's no connection, well, Josh and the production team at Bond by Numbers have got Bringing some surprises it back. for you. Bringing it back. Once again, guys, thanks for thanks for checking in. And uh, yeah, we, we hope you enjoy this. If you haven't had a chance to read Moonraker lately, then by all means, uh, stop the uh, recording, go pick it up and join us back in a couple of days once you've... Once you've gone cover to cover with that one. Yeah, go to your uh, local uh, liquor store and uh, get yourself a can of Spitfire or any, <laughs> any one of those Kentish ales and enjoy Moonraker. Okay, good recommendation. Is that a Kentish ale? Yes, it is. Good for you. Well done. All right, everybody. Enjoy the show. talk about Moonraker, the third book in Ian Fleming's series of 14 original James Bond titles. This episode three is entitled Bond in Space. Or as I like to call it, James Bond fights the Nazis. <laughs> How you doing, Josh? It's been about a month since we last met to speak about Ian Fleming and James Bond. Well, much like Bond at the beginning of this novel, um, I'm kind of in the banality and doldrums of... Uh, of the tax season here in Ottawa, <laughs> working at uh, uh, banking websites. Uh, I do technical support there and for like the stock traders and whatnot, uh, TD Bank actually. And yeah, it's pretty busy right now. So you're getting like a lot of long shifts. Uh, so it's nice to get out of that drudgery and, you know, and, and do and do this once a month. So yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm glad, I'm glad that I don't have uh, taxes to file myself over here. Of course, uh, it's one of the privileges, well, privileges, like, I, I, if you've never seen a different system, I guess you wouldn't think so, but it's one of the nice things about being a public servant in this country is that you don't have to file your own taxes. That's all taken care of. Um, if you're a private business owner or employee, then yes, you have to, but um, I, I don't have to file my own taxes. I remember, man, growing up in Canada, especially when I went to university, what a pain in the ass that was with all the papers and the numbers. And, and if you've had a bursary or a student loan or anything of that nature, it just became an absolute headache. I'm sure there are people that have thrown themselves off bridges for having to file their own taxes. Absolutely. Oh, I, I agree. Like, I, I, I'm, I, know, I know so many people that don't do it. And like I do it once a year myself. I get the like, if you recall, you get, you know, you get that that, that package of sheets and you tear oh, them yeah. off and you have the guide to look at the sections and you look at your bills and see if you have the, the you know, if you have, if you have to add, attach this segment and you do it once a year, it takes about, you know, you have everything together. You're done like in about two and a half hours max, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you can do it online as well. And it's so easy to do. Um, it's a weird one. 
Right, I know. This, like, this is just, you know, it's, I find that uh, some people finding that, like, so frustrating to do once a year and they have someone else do it themselves. It just seems bizarre to me. It is, it is bizarre, but, you know, it keeps chumps like you in work, doesn't it, this time of year? I suppose to, yeah. I, 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 you're, you're right, because all the people calling in right now because the tax season, they want to look at their online tax documents and they don't have Adobe Reader working properly or they have <laughs> the wrong operating system, too outdated for our website and blah, blah, blah. And uh, yeah, so I think this is a really good opening to Moonraker based on, you know, the kind of like uh, administrative uh, hell that we kind of open open with Bond in. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about that because I like the opening of this book. It's it's really interesting. It I mean, it provides in a lot of ways the same info dump that the other two does or did, but it, it gives you a sense of what a, what an agent's day-to-day job is when he's not off flying around the world, right? I think this goes into what I've read about Moonraker, um, despite the fact, you know, reading it and also reading about how it was written and whatnot and how different it is from the 1979 film. <laughs> mm, yeah, and I, I guess we should point out, um, although the episode is softly entitled Bond in Space, Bond doesn't go to space here. Uh, that was a an homage to the 79 film. Moonraker, the novel we're going to discuss, has very little to do with Roger Moore's um, sci-fi spoof. I think he's attempting re- re-entry, sir. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? One of these days we'll go back and we'll go all we'll do all those films, but that's not uh, that's not for us at this particular moment. Should I um, <clears throat> maybe review for the sake of ourselves and the folks at home that might be listening, or for posterity's sake, uh, our little system? of scoring for each of these titles sure i can uh, name them off each one if you like okay go well we've, we've we've got an acronym it's called angle at the end of our discussion josh and i will each uh issue an angle on what we thought of this book just as we did previously with live and let die and casino royale we've got a n g l e and we're judging the criteria we're, we're judging the criteria by those five components josh what do they stand for a is for adversaries and allies. So we're looking at the the great villains, henchmen, the the helpful members of other agencies, um, any kind of uh, archetype you know that help local art, 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 ethnic archetype that you see helping bond out. You know those types of characters. You know so then we have N. N is for narrative. So we're talking about the general idea of how the story works and uh, do we like the story? Do we think it was different? Event of twists, plot twists, elements that we liked or disliked about it. Then we have G, the girls or girl, depending on the story. Um, key element of the uh, of, of the Bond iconography uh, in the novels and the films, more so in the films. Um, I, I kind of find so far, there's, there's, an, inter- there's an interesting... Um, difference i think between the bond girls of the books and the bond girls of the films and a lot of the earlier bond girls are nothing more than animated centerfolds and i find that at least fleming he may not know how to write women in the extent that people do nowadays but i find that he tries to make his women somewhat interesting and somewhat in in, in a non-chauvinist fashion as best as he possibly can Uh, i'm not sure about that i think i think we would disagree on that I don't, uh, and we have already disagreed on that. I know softly, yes. but um, yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see where we yeah. go with this. It'll be interesting. Mo- moving on, uh, moving on. L is for locale or location. So, which exotic place is Bond visiting this time in this story in this mission? 
And of course, E is for equipment. What types of devices, everyday items that Bond utilizes or the characters in the story utilize in terms of uh, propelling the narrative further? What kind of inventive use of these devices that we see in the story? Right. And we, we rate each one of these out of five, basically. We do, which gives us a marking out of 25, and that helps to get a scoring index. So when we're, <coughs> pardon me, when we're all finished this, we'll have um, an index, I suppose, a ranking that will entitle us to justified opinion. Yeah, I think we get, a, yeah, a little bit. I think we probably leave a little bit. I think narrative is the closest thing we get in terms of uh, a formal kind of examination of the text itself and the, the possibility, because we know we don't have anything about style or prose or anything like that in there. Well, that but, is that is the narrative, isn't it? I mean, but, narrative is style and pacing and things like that. Not to sound like someone reading who reads The New Yorker or writes for The New Yorker even worse, but honestly, <laughs> like... They're James Bond novels, you know, like it's, yeah, yeah. It's, we're not reading like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky here or uh, a separate piece or, or something like that, you know, I mean. No, we're not. Um, I, I, I do have to say, though, I, I think that John Knowles would be delighted that you put his separate piece in there with Tolstoy. <laughs> I, I was just looking at the books on my shelf and there's just the combination of those two. Yeah, I mean, come on. They're like worlds apart, man. Oh, they definitely are. They definitely, anyway, definitely are. That's a good point, though. I mean, part of the reason we want to do this series is because we, you know, we have an enthusiasm for Bond and for and for literature, but... You know, we Can I say wanna... something right now? Yeah, go ahead. It has nothing ahead. to do with Bond, but I just feel like it's a provocative thing to say, and and it might haunt me for the rest of my days. I doubt. But, but <laughs> I doubt. I think Tolstoy is overrated. Do you? I think his books are soap operas. Is that so? I think they're no different from some historical fiction you read nowadays. I don't know. Like I, I, I tried reading some of them and everything, and I just find like his dialogue is terrible. I just want to say that it's probably also a, a translation kind of issue too, most likely that I'm interpreting it through. That's a good point. Uh, was he responsible for translating any of his own works? I don't. I have no idea. I never looked that, into that it. That would be interesting. You know, I mean, a guy like um, uh, Samuel Beckett, you know, translated his French works into English, and um, so I just never found any kind of interesting passages in the in the book at all like it was just people talking in conversation like he could write a great screenplay that's for darn sure yeah well but or a stage play or something like that but i don't know like i just never found any, any of his passage particularly illuminating i guess it's just the arc of the narrative and the scope that he put into it i guess he captured that society and i guess that's what it's pretty much known for but i think about people authors catching you know capturing a certain society at a time i mean you look at people like Jane Austen or Dickens or what have you, and I think they did a much better job in a much more lyrical fashion. Mm -hmm. A more engaging way, a more entertaining, um, kind of... And I will say this, I think in terms of, as a, for, <clears throat> for, for describing um, like a lot of uh, pathetic fallacy in terms of like the narrative uh, and the locations and describing the land and, and nature and whatnot, and I think Fleming has some actually some brilliant passages in his books yeah i've i've started to develop more of an appreciation for him as a writer than just a figure if that makes any sense i i think so too yeah there's a couple of chapters in moonraker in particular we're going to get into where you can just tell this, this the kent the wields all of you know all of the southern england is just captured in beautiful glory mm -hmm. and you read about people being so critical of this book in particular at the time how there was none no exotic locales to go to you know yeah, in yeah. this and i think i think fleming wanted to capture 
the day after, you know, working as a civil servant in England um, and the countryside there around it. And I think it's very important too. This is my personal feeling. He talked about the white cliffs of Dover and St. Margaret's Bay and everything. This is where thousands of years ago, a thousand years ago or more, and where, where, and Fleming mentions this, where Caesar landed in Britain for the first time. That's and true. It's kind of interesting how the epicenter of uh, our Drax, uh, the villain of the story's uh, assault on London, is based upon is is based from this area. You know, attacking the heart of British British civilization and a very from a very historical historical standpoint, where so many invasions have occurred of England. And I I, I just think that that was much more. It wasn't just the setting of where he was known for, but I think it was a thematic choice on his part. So, oh, really? That's that's interesting. I, I think so. I don't know. I, right. I I can see that. I have no evidence to back that up or whatever. But it's no. it's nice to philosophize li- li- like that. It is, and and as you say, I mean, Fleming does mention it, so he he's certainly aware of where he's setting this, right? Absolutely. Oh, speaking of setting, in discussing locales, the uh, L of our angles, we also need to make provisions for settings within locations. For example, uh, any particular. Uh, setting uh, in a room or in, <clears throat> you know, in a town or a village. It's not just the countries that are visited to in the sweeping sort of Bond film series way of looking at it, but we're talking individual locations, even if it happens to be, you know, how the setting is rendered in the back of a vehicle or something. That locations as they drive and are manifested in the plot, right? Good point. Right. Very okay. good point. And I think in terms of stories like Moonraker, which are a lot more in a smaller setting uh, or, or, or in a very enclosed setting, a certain geographical locus in one, in one huge area, you know, we're going to have to realize that, you yeah. know what, like, yeah. Okay. So we got Southern England, Dover and London, but what about blades? What about uh, Drax's estate? What about um, the pub outside or, or the beach? Like, so these are kind of things we have to realize that not every bond story is going to have him globetrotting. So we no, have to kind of, of yeah. pare things down in terms of locations as well. And I think that's a really good point. So yeah, we, I think, well, in the future, we should definitely, uh, in terms of doing the angle, we should look into like different settings, not so much as actual geographical cities or area or regions. Right. Well, I mean, you say in the future, but... We did do that. We've already done it. We made that note earlier, I remember. We talked a lot about how in Casino Royale, he never really leaves the south of France. And we spent a lot true. of time talking about the Boneyard in Live and Let Die, that club, right? So That's true. That's we, true. I, I'm, I'm including it in my mark, and I think you are included in yours as well. So yes, it's just a reminder to the audience or anybody listening that, you know, we are not just thinking about geographical spaces, but, you know, man-made spaces within those places as well. Yep. Our point okay. is that, like, if you feel that we're giving, like, for the, the locale, like, a high mark, like a 4 out of 4.5 or out of 5, for example, um, it's and you think that, what, they're only in, in, in Britain in this, in this book, wouldn't you want to put that as a lower mark? And I'm like, no, not at all. That's not how that's not how we're, we're rating this. And yeah. I just wanted to get that across. Yes. It's not a failure of the book if you only stay in one place. It, the setting can come in lots of different ways. But we are beating this horse to death. It is um, it is bloody and beaten, and yes, we're going to wash our hands and move on. Correct, correct. So, Moonraker, April nineteen fifty-five. It was published, the third Bond novel, nine thousand nine hundred copies. Josh Hardback is another Fleming suggestion for the cover. He had 
uh, suggested based on his own designs, ideas for the first two, uh, Live and Let Die and Casino Royale. And here we have another Fleming cover. This one a little bit more, um, a little bit more flamboyant with flame and kind of licking fire up the, uh, you know, up the front of the spine of the book and um, the cover front and rear are both covered in flame. And that could, of course, hint at rocket, uh, but it could also hint Cute Canaveral at, space launch. Yeah, and it could also hint at, you know, the idea of annihilation and uh, flame. Nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, it was a successful print and it was a successful sell. This, I think, is where we start to see Fleming's works um, and Fleming's name, I suppose, start to mean a little bit more. The first two sold well, but it took time. This one didn't take as much time to sell. By now, we sense that Ian Fleming is becoming more of a household name in the writing of thrillers. Uh, in the United States, uh, Macmillan published the book in September of the same year, I believe, and Pan Paperback sold 43,000 copies in their run between October and December of 1956. Now, when you stop and you think about that fact, compared with how across the country, I think it was something like eight or 9,000 copies of paperback didn't sell in a year. We are talking about a guy who is now hitting the U.S. market in a way that he never did before. That's, he's definitely making, making an impact. And you can tell that Bond is becoming popular overseas, even more so almost in England. Yeah. And this probably this would probably lead into the popularity getting to the point where they, CBS made that uh, live-action TV movie. Oh, Casino Royale. Yeah, we're probably not move. We're probably not far away from it. The uh, uh, yeah, I think maybe we'll look into that for our next episode and see how that fits contextually with what we're talking about. Yeah, I just, I just, I just, I just thought about that. I remember yeah. that CBS yeah. was did they actually were the first ones to adapt the James Bond novel. That's right. And that was Casino Royale in '55. Although they made Bond American, if I'm not mistaken, in that story. Yeah, I can't remember the the actor's name. I want to say Barry somebody, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, right. We will figure that out. Um, like with Casino Royale, in 1956, in December, so just after Pan Paperback has their pretty enormous, for that time, run of 43,000 copies, um, the U.S. publishes this as a different titled story called Too Hot to Handle. And for this edition, and I thought this was quite interesting, Fleming himself wrote a number of explanatory footnotes to help Americanize the British idiom. Huh. So... In Interesting. Yeah, I'd like so to get can... my hands on a copy of that just to see what his footnotes are and if they're as condescending to American readers as Live and Let Die was to American old age pensioners. Yeah, there was one there's one note I actually noticed here. I don't know if it was a Fleming note, but if you go to page one twenty four, well it is in my book anyway, where this is the this is the line of text. I think this is about um talking about Bond... the ship in this in the sands. Bond was, yeah, it says here, did they flinch as it punctuated the housewife's choice, coming at full strength from the radio in the narrow mess? But a secure life, Bond decided, although anchored to the to, to the gates of a graveyard, Bond was wrong. Friday 26, November 1954, RIP. Yeah, that I, was... I got info on that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when I mean, unless you want to tell the story. When we get there, we can go through it, because I know what that's referring to. Um... Well, my outline doesn't really include that particular one bit of incident, actually. But oh, uh, well, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah. So footnotes. There's only one in this book, but there's a lot in that other edition. Uh, since 1955, this was another interesting point. Uh, Moonraker has never been out of print. 
And that's why I think we're probably talking about the most successful novel that Fleming wrote in his career up to this point. I can see that. And given the context, like the subject matter yeah. and, you know, and the archetypes that he used quite well. And I think both overseas over in North America and over in England, uh, I can see why it was a much popular title. Yeah. Um, and you can see Bond going from being kind of like a, a contained spy kind of story. And now it's starting to get kind of bigger despite the fact of, of, of the smaller use of locales in this book. But I mean, here we are, we're tackling like uh, the idea of a British <laughs> space program. And uh, you can tell that like he was, he was kind of on, on, on the, on hand, on, on the, um, Bond was on, sorry, Fleming was on the right, uh, I guess, fr frequency with pop culture at the time. But as with the other two novels that Fleming wrote, this one did include uh, some mixed opinions. I'll, I'll just, I'm just going to take you through a brief survey of some of the reviews. I found a, okay. found a couple of these quite easily, and then I looked a little more, sifted around a little more deeply and found a couple of others. So just get a taste of how people at the time felt about Moonraker. The Listener, okay. the Listener which is a weekly magazine, um, as mercilessly readable as all the rest. The Scotsman, Fleming the Minister's stimuli with no mean hand. Astonish me, the attic may challenge. Mr. Fleming can knock him sideways. Two very positive reviews. The Times Literary Supplement, writer Julian Simons, a disappointment. Fleming's tendency to parry the form of the thriller takes over in the second half. John Metcalf, yeah, John Metcalf, writing for The Spectator at the time, utterly disgraceful and highly enjoyable. Not one of Mr. Fleming's best. No forthcoming rail journey should be taken without it. <laughs> so basically, it's like an airport book. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how it sounds, yes. New York Times, Anthony Boucher, who we cited in an earlier Fleming review. I don't know anyone who writes about gambling more vividly than Fleming, and I only wish the other parts of his books lived up to their gambling sequences. So, hmm. go figure. You know, I'm, it's kind of like the other ones. It hits a couple of spots and is praised for it, but also yeah, a little bit of negativity in there as well. We're going to flesh it out and see what we get, but... Moonraker, as I was saying earlier, started as an idea for a screenplay. And this film producer, Alexander Korda, read Live and Let Die and told Fleming that he really, really liked the style and he liked the book. But unfortunately, that book wouldn't make it a good film. So Fleming said, well, his next one, Moonraker, is going to be more cinematic. And I think the idea was to adapt that for the screen. But it never really worked out that way for whatever, I, for, for whatever reason. You don't know anything about that, eh? About the screenplay? No, not really. No, I first time I heard about it. I mean, everyone knows about the 1955 movie, that TV movie and whatnot, but uh, Moon, Moon, Moonraker as a screenplay, I can kind of see it, like, you know, how it was done. Um, so was the whole, it was like the basic plot of the book itself, the entire screenplay? Yeah, from what I can understand, yeah. Did he write that before Casino Royale? Uh, I don't believe so, no. Because I was thinking, because if he did, because there's definitely sequences I found in Moonraker that were, were almost like were very similar to that in Casino Royale. So oh, yeah. I thought perhaps he just adapted them in, in a screenplay sense for the story and just changed things, you know, from Baccarat to Bridge or something like that. Hmm. No, I don't know. I mean, I only consulted three sources on it. I probably could have looked deeper, but uh, they, were, they were talking more about the relationship with this guy, Alexander Korda. 
who's a film producer I'd never heard of, but that doesn't really account for much because well, he directed a um, I believe he directed um, the th- the Four Feathers with like Ralph Richardson oh. back in the day. Okay, and and uh, also I think he was responsible for that Richard Burton Alexander the Great uh, biopic as well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I'll trust you on that. You are the film student. Uh, there, there were uh, two brothers, Corda, and they were producers in Hollywood or and directors, I believe, too. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll go for it. Uh, yeah. So basically, that's it. I mean, that I guess that was a, a, a torturous way of saying that Moonraker was well received critically, lots of positive reviews, but there was a sprinkle of disappointment within them as well. And one of them uh, did mention this idea that it was boring for the book to stay in England because this is the first uh, Bond book and perhaps the only one. We haven't read them all yet and so we don't want to give too much away, but the uh, the only Bond story to date, at least, that is entirely set in and around England. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that is definitely true. I think out of narrative necessity, though, it, it works quite well for the story. Yeah, I think it does too. And we can say more about that when we get into... Uh, into the plot, the narrative. And uh, Josh, I think it's time. Let's just move forward. I want to get this egg cracked. So Moonraker, give us a short plot summary. Yeah, so... As we said, Moonraker, uh, Ian Fleming's Moonraker, um, or a.k.a. James Bond fights the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just dive right right, right into it, basically. So we begin in MI6 HQ in Regent's Park. Um, we get a very kind of Mad Men-esque view of the everyday cogs in the great machine that is MI6 and the British Civil Service. The banality of spy work outside of the missions, you know, complete with Bond eating alone in the cafeteria, bringing his own sauce. There's always someone who does that. Um, really, just a, just a day in the life of Bond's life between his missions. He's just a civil servant with the secretary. He is tested for his marksmanship. He speaks to his mechanic. Uh, Bond calls him into his office. Uh, he makes a lunch break with the civil with, with the, the chief of staff. Um, he doesn't show up because he's late at a meeting with him. Um, just kind of setting up this whole notion of this is like a day in the life of James Bond. And I think this goes into the whole small setting that Moonraker has as a whole, in my opinion. Um, and the most, the most exotic aspect being we go to the white cliffs of Dover and St. Margaret's Bay, essentially. Uh-huh. Uh, to continue here. Um, so M calls Bond into his office and he has Bond show off his knowledge about in terms of London trendsetting uh his aptitudes for you know the the the, uh social meet and greets by listing off all he knows about sir hugo drax why are we put why is he pontificating about this titan of steel and aeronautics this patron of the british (laughs) again space program um so why is he doing all this why does anyone know all all about this well m he drops the anvil he cheats at bridge this up this member of the british upper crust you know this this society maven he cheats at bridge and this is a big no-no in terms of society why would a man do this why would he throw away reputation and risk scandal by doing something like this and it's not because they and the reason why m is going into it not because they're going to arrest drax for doing so but they need to have him stop doing this because he's an important figure in the british (laughs) space program um so they need to find out if he is cheating and so 
M tells Bond to come along with them to the uh, club, to the gambling club Blades, um, which we get a very prestigious uh, and detailed uh, description of in terms of like the British club land in, in this. Um, Bond goes to Blades. He wines and dine. Uh, M is, he is wine and dine by M, and they take part in a bridge game with Sir Hugo Drax and company. Drax is a brain ass despite his social stature. Bond dislikes him from the get go. We can we, we, he learns that Drax is using his cigarette lighter, sorry, his cigarette case, uh, shiny metal cigarette case to catch the reflections of the other hands. That's how he cheats. Bond subtly calls him out on it. Then we get. Spend the money quickly, Mr. Bond. And uh, so Drax gets his social humiliation, his his check. They think everything's going to be fine now. Drax will just go back to what he was doing and not be not not just not, not just be a dick for the sake of being a dick. And hopefully that will resolve the situation. Unfortunately, not the case. Um, all of a sudden, the liaison between um, the Moonraker program and um, by the way, Moonraker. It's just yeah. an interesting name that Fleming chose. It chose like it sounds like something you read out of Ten Ten or something like that. I, I just it's just the weirdest name for a space shuttle, you know? It is kind of weird, yeah. Like, what, what about like I don't know, like the moon? Some I don't like Moon Raker. It's like I'm just picturing like a giant rake going across the surface of the Sea of Tranquility or something like that. Like I don't know, like it's just a weird, weird name for for for, for a rocket ship, and it just sounds totally like last minute made up. To, title and just kind of brings an extra bit of cheese cheese to it you know it, it, but apparently it wasn't a made-up title and in fact uh, Fleming's buddy Noel Coward told him that he probably shouldn't call it the Moonraker because there was already something some book that was written called that interesting yeah and again I, I don't have it in front of me but I remember I guess th this is a, this is I guess this is this is a bit of a of a deficit of uh, British pop popular literary culture at the time some pulp novel or something like that well yeah but Moon moonraker is also a company um that produces cb radios and things like that you know for for uh, trucks and stuff interesting yeah hmm. it, that's and also a british thing but anyway drax was also an aeronautics and uh um you know giant and a steel giant so maybe he owned the company and maybe part of the it wasn't mentioned in the novel, though. I don't recall the Moonraker company ever mentioned in the novel. Not, no. Interesting. Well, carrying on here. Um, so basically, this Talon, who's the head, who's the RAF liaison between the Moonraker program and Regents Park, MI6, um, he is in a local pub uh, in Kent, um, just outside of where the Moonraker, um, where, where Drax Estate is, and, and uh, also where the Moonraker program is being developed. Um, he goes over to uh, a pub, this guy Talon, and all of a sudden one of Drax's German workers that, that he hired walks in and accuses him of of um, trying to capture the hand of the beautiful Gala Brand, who is a uh, special branch Scotland Yard agent in undercover as a kind of like a meteorologist type um, specialist or something like or, or something along those lines uh, under Drax's organization, just keeping an eye on it, right, and working with Talon. And so this this German Barch, he decides to shoot uh, Talon, killing him in, in in the pub, and then of course he blows his brains out afterwards. They get into the details of, of what happened um, with Barch um, afterwards. Yeah, of course. So, so because those, of this, those are important details. Yeah, yeah, they are very important details. So essentially, uh, the plot development is this RAF liaison being killed um, requires a, re a replacement. So Bond has to replace him, and now he has to work with Drax. Awkward. A little bit. 
Yeah, right. And so so Bond goes out there and everything, and uh, he meets uh, Drax again. They have he has a deal with it. He finds himself kind of liking the man a bit more because he's seen how well he manages his operation and whatnot and you know maybe this guy is just a dick socially you know and exactly. maybe i had him wrong or something and yeah know, like you i mean you're a big dick socially exactly 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 <laughs> Sorry. you know like it's, 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 what I, it's what i said earlier about um uh you know you, 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 i think we we're talking about how like uh everyone is every, every everyone is a dick to someone from the outside unless you get to know that person that's right you know, we have to. The only way to appreciate people's eccentricities is to know them, or to know them ourselves. Otherwise, you know, of course, we're going to make judgments because you know what, we're human, and this is why I think what Bond kind of uh, went through in terms of his of of his getting to know Drax. Uh, yeah. Before be, before other events begin begin to, of course, uh, untangle in the storyline. Correct. Um, so Bond basically during this time he takes he meets Galabran for the first time the Scotland Yard superintendent she's very pretty she's very but she's professional and uh, she's and of course we know how much Bond likes professional women who don't who don't fog things up with sex as he as I said in an earlier novel uh-huh. and uh, you you know so we get idea that um, even though both Fleming and Bond are a bit of a chauvinist they do they they seem to be you know like respect of respectful of women who. In, in a certain extent, who um, you know, who who do do their jobs correctly, but at the same time, deep down, I think there's also this uh, social expectation that in the end, that yeah, they'll do their jobs correctly, and I'm sure they're they can do it just as well as a man, but they have their place. I think this is kind of this, but that's the mindset of the society at the time. I I I feel correct. Now moving forward, so Gala is not impressed by Mister Bond's charm. And so she's really frosty to him. But Bond begins to investigate what Talon is up to. He goes to the pub, and that was where, he, where Talon was killed. And he finds out that Barch, before killing uh, himself after shooting um, Talon, says, "Let's out a nice good old Sig Heil before doing so." So then, you know, in your mind, you're going, "Okay, so Germans working for this British industrialist making a rocket." You know, your mind connects to certain things like Operation Paperclip, which you'll think about Walter, the scientist that came over from the, from the Germans. So Werner von Braun kind of type, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then you have, you know, these Germans working for this industrialist. And so you're thinking in your mind, OK, I'm seeing a Nazi connection. You and are. Then I think be having the idea of the context of the Moonraker storyline from the from the films coming into your mind. Drax's whole eugenics experiment and wiping out humanity to replace it with his own society. I can see, you know, in terms of the adaptation, where they were going in terms of adapting the Moonraker storyline from the the uh, the original one into the the future one, because I don't think Nazis would play as well back up in 1979. You know? No, probably not as well. Yeah. So moving forward. Uh... <coughs> Pardon me. Bond, Bond manages to reconnect with Gala. It's a little less frosty. They go for a walk. There's a charming comment about flowers that scream when their petals are removed. I can't figure out this is some weird innuendo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they go for a flirtatious swim and bathe in the sea, and then they sunbathe, and then all of a sudden they're they get they're interrupted by an impromptu mud bath slash dynamite triggered rock slide as the escarpment falls <laughs> on top of them. But they live and crash Drax's celebration party. Gala manages to figure out that the wind projections she had given him weren't correct. 
And so she needs, and so the plot line goes essentially from there to Gala figuring out that that um, she needs she needs to see the coordinates. She steals Drax's pocketbook um, where where the coordinates are, but she gets caught and she disappears for a day. And then Bond is trying to find out what happened to her. And then of course he manages to locate Drax from the club, from from the Blades Club over to Drax's apartment near Buckingham Palace, Grosvenor Square, I believe it is. I can't remember the actual place. Um, and then what happens is he sees Gala being thrown in the back of the car. We go on a car chase, very similar to Casino Royale's kind of car chase, where he's going after Vesper with Lashifa um, carrying her off. Uh, very simple, not a simple, but very similar to in that regard, just like the bridge game to Casino Royale's Baccarat game. We have this car chase. Uh, Drax shows that he's a murderous maniac. This is when Bond, re- see, it's funny, I think, in this story is that Gala is the one that figures out Drax is the baddie, you know, that he's actually, uh, as, as she find, as, um, as, as we soon learn, that Drax is, in fact, not a British industrialist or a British-born even. He's, in fact, um, a surviving member of one of the Ardennes offensive German officers who were, who were made to disguise as Allied soldiers during the Battle of the Bulge. And during this, one of the operations, he was left in a coma due to, due to a botched operation. And uh, he survives. And of course, but he wakes up in a British hospice and he's believed to be a British citizen. And so he, he manages to build up his plan of revenge against, uh, against England and serving, you know, the fallen, fallen Reich by, by gathering up all, finding all his colleagues while he travels the world, stealing, swindling, making money, cheating uh, to build up his uh, resources so that he can become this titan of the steel industry in England and then push the Moonraker program. So England is throwing all his money in the space program, financing Drax, while Drax is like, thanks for all the money you're giving me because now I'm going to shoot a rocket at London. And, you know, like, <laughs> you, you you did this to yourselves. You dug your own grave and you're, it's well-deserved, right? Yeah. So in the end, uh, Bond manages to locate Gala. And uh, basically uh, it ends up that the gyros that determine the the rocket launch are managed to be switched by Gala, which leads to um, the rocket going into, into the North Sea, not in London, like Drax had planned. And then, of course, his, Drax's big day is completely ruined um, with his whole uh, with with the failure of the Moonraker launch and his revenge against England. And secondly, uh, of course, then leading to 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 to, to this to the the culmination of Drax's terrible no good bad day when uh the submarine that he escapes in is uh sunk to the bottom of the uh the english channel yeah that, that's kind of comical but we'll get there yeah absolutely absolutely and uh and then of course it leads up to you know yay england is saved and there no one no one can ever be acknowledged that hugo drax was this person and it was all covered up nightly nicely by the government james bond's hit was from nuclear armageddon and there he is back in his office the secretary and going to the canteen eating his lunch again on his own and hey he has a date you know with galabrand because she seems to be into him but no she has a, a fiance she and uh, you know what she makes a decision she decides you know what uh you seem like a charming young man but you know this guy was here first and uh, you know you know that's tough and uh bond's like oh well <laughs> yeah and it's it's on that it's on that sort of resignatory side that the, the story ends. I know. It was almost like it was almost like <clears throat> it kind of captures the whole like Moonraker launch in itself. You know, it kind of 
builds up to like the huge huge ignition and then all of a sudden it's a dud you know <laughs> yeah of course you can go through other innuendos um in that regard oh yes there sure are well that, that was i keep good. thinking of that song you know from the 70s what's it called uh sky rockets in flight oh afternoon I delight <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but, 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 but in bond's case there was no afternoon delight or evening delight or evening delight there is just basically uh his his, his sauce and his fillet in the canteen at uh, regent's park at least he didn't have to pay for it at least he didn't have to pay for it that's right i guess that's the silver lining that was a uh, a good concise plot summary I, I think in this terms, uh, if you go at it in a certain kind of way, it, it kind of breaks things down because you don't want to give it too much of a plot summary away, I think. There's little tidbits I think you want, you know, for our listeners, you know, who want to go into the Bond novels. And I want you to discover some of these little things yourself. And I don't yeah. want to tell you every, every bit of details. But, spoiler alert, we will give you the basic structure. Yeah, I was just about to say that um, that if anybody wants to go discover those little bits for themselves, now's, now is the time because... We are about to spoil the book horrendously by talking about every bit of it. So, not every bit of it, but every every key bit of it. Yes. Right. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, just, I, I want to start by kind of the way this book is structured. You know, it's it's there's no chapters. Um, in the same well there are chapters but not in quite the same way we have parts to this book and each of them is named after a different day of the week in which bond's mission with the moonraker take place and I, we've got i Monday. really like that i find like it's almost like you get like this 24 kind of like urgency to the whole storyline you yeah. know what i mean i liked it as well if for no other reason the fact that it it was set and it gave us a very specific time setting and like a countdown itself kind of for a rocket launch yes you get point. this idea that that we're leading up to something um you said this in your summary but i just wanted to tease it out again because uh you know it's because of m's suspicion of drax that bond gets involved in this in the first place and so you know instead of going after a criminal bond is actually just pursuing a cheater and he's very casual about it all. He's going along with this almost like a curio. He wants to do a favor for M because he respects him and he admires him. And he, yes. he's curious how this this big popular figure, this philanthropist, is at least in a small circle. And Blades was a small circle of only about 200 private members. Why mm -hmm. it is that he's deemed to be or suspected of being a cheater. And what might that say about his personality, about his character. And so... You know, I, I like the fact that this story is really predicated at and motivated by a favor to his boss. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I kind of, that's one thing though I will be critical about in terms though is that I found that like, so this guy Drax is a cheater. Well, guess what? People who are assholes and who are cheaters, well, guess what? They're also evil Nazis as well, apparently. Yeah. It just kind of seemed like a bit of a serendipity there, you know? Like Yes, it did. It's like, you know, sniff out a cheater and you'll find a Nazi German. Like, what? <laughs> no, you'll probably find somebody from Blackpool who cheats or from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland that cheats, right? Like, it's it doesn't connect. But I suppose in it, it sells books, and especially at this time when everybody's looking for a reason to smear Germany. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, just to say something about that, I wanted to ask your opinion on this, man, because, you know, Blades is a very exclusive gentleman's club. 
There are 200 members. And at, in the book, it says somewhere, I've just made this note. I don't know what page it is, but it says that basically all members have to be able to show 100,000 pounds in cash or credit security, right? Now, M, as far as I know, is a civil servant. And yeah, fine, he's a head of intelligence or whatever, but he doesn't have that kind of money. How in the shit is he a member of this club? I guess because of his special circumstances, being an admiral, maybe there's, they, they probably mentioned the fact of like, of, of how much would have M be paid as a civil servant at the time if he was like admiral, unless M has his own personal wealth, that's all I can think of. Yeah, I, and that makes him interesting, you know, if he does have his own personal wealth. But I remember reading, and I don't know what book it was, because I'm coming back to my uh, teenage years here, but I, it might even be Her Majesty's Secret Service, or I'm, I'm gonna look really looking forward to reading all of these again, but... One of them actually says how much money M makes, and I think it's like 20,000 or 30,000 pounds. So right. I I'm trying to figure it out. But anyway, I really like the idea that this is kind of M's hunch because it does, it does kind of validate his intelligence as being head of security. Do you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. It, it makes us feel like, okay, the guy who's in charge of the service is also actually quite intelligent. Yes, it, uh, and it kind of it shows how um, what's the word? Uh, it gives you uh, confidence in the terms yeah. of how, in this terms of storyline that of you know of how uh, what's the word uh, secure England is and uh, and and the resources that they, they can put into putting people like Bond in play. You know. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry about all these stupid interruptions. It's it's these damn speakers. They're. Uh... Well, it's not that big a deal, I suppose, but it just keeps... Yeah, you got you got you got a whole like Tony Stark Iron Man thing going there with uh, your like robot <laughs> voices and stuff. <laughs> I wish, man. I wish, but no. And I, I, actually, I probably don't wish that I had Tony Stark's life. Yeah, it seems very. Uh, what's the word? Chaotic. <laughs> Quite. Anyway, right. Let's get back to the book. Um, we're okay now. We're charging, so no more Iron Man interruptions. Um. Yeah, anyway, I like that. But uh, you also mentioned uh, Bond's secretary and how this book starts really kind of uh, in the doldrums of working life. Do you want to say something about Miss Ponsonby? Yeah, Miss Ponsonby. Um, is it, I don't know. I can't recall if she appears in any other further of Ben Fleming's novels, but uh, it's interesting that Bond has his own secretary. And I guess, you know, my, one of my main experiences with learning about the culture of like that's this time period and whatnot, I mentioned that about how this being very much like Mad Men. And I was just thinking, I, I decided to go on YouTube the other day and I watched like part of the pilot of uh, Mad Men and how like the character that Elizabeth Moss plays, Peggy, she's like the secretary and how she has to come in to like the offices and see all the secretaries working there. And then she has to meet her. And then of course she has her Bond is just like Don Draper, basically walking up to his secretary, going to his office on his own. He doesn't want to ask for water because he, he feels like she, he doesn't want to be cosseted. You know, like there's all these just different dynamics of, of, of these women who are basically secretaries, but and they, they do their job respectfully and they're appreciated for, for what they do. But there's still this social expectation that they're there to meet a husband. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea of Ponsonby being like Lilia Ponsonby being like a spinster, and uh, if if they if they stay if they stay in that role a bit too long in their lives, unmarried and just you know living as a spinster and getting their service award and then retiring to spinsterhood, basically. Yeah, and I I I wonder how accurate that was, uh, like how accurate her predicament was for women who worked in that in in that environment. You know, it says here, um, or Fleming writes that. 
She had no intention of becoming emotionally involved with any man who might be dead next week. So she wasn't That's... interested. She wasn't interested in Bond, despite having feelings physically attracted to him. Uh, but for the women, an affair outside the service automatically made you a security risk. And in the last analysis, you had a choice of resignation from the service and a normal life, or of perpetual, perpetual concubinage to your king and country. Perpetual concubinage. Yeah, that's that, that's a very good way of, of putting it. I also like kind of Fleming's chauvinist notion there that uh, you know what? Uh, maybe she doesn't find Bond attractive. Maybe she's just like she's just a nice person and she respects for what he did for his country and. You know, like, yeah, of course, he's charming and charms. I just think it's funny that he seems that, like, women find all men handsome. But yeah. but at least they have, like, their own personal uh, bit, a bit of willpower that they don't do those things. And they decide to choose husbands. I don't know. It just seems like a chauvinist comment to me. Of course it is, man. Like, this, I, I've said that before. I, I don't think Fleming has a lot of respect for women. I, I well, I think he's twi- I think he's a bit, he's just a bit perverted in terms of what, of what respect is. I, that, that's what I honestly think. Okay, that's that's a fair point. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you always slap gloves across my face and and wake me up to to context and reality. I, I mean, yeah, what I read here in the twenty first century is not respect, is contextualized, um, you know, ignorance. Exactly, it is exactly it. It's uh, it's a different culture than from what we from what we we live in, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, back then, you I mean like I mean, men like like men like Fleming, I mean. They, you know, they were they were raised by their mothers and whatnot, and their fathers were probably always, always probably aloof, especially in, in, that, in those circumstances. And uh, Fleming, you know, who lost his father at an early, at an early age, uh, you know, he had to go to boarding school, as we talked about in the uh, first episode, uh, and had to live live his life. And his mother did everything he can so that he would be he would be ambitious and get his get get, get his career going, and basically foiling all of his all of his little flings and and, and whatnot. So. You know, like women are a very controlling factor in their lives, and there's a bit of worship, a bit of respect, and also a little bit of resentment at the same time that I think creates this chauvinistic aspect of of, of the time period. Well, well, well said. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you on that. Um, yeah, it's a bit, a bit, I went a bit too Freudian there, but you you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move on though, and and uh, add to something that we're kind of laying out here, which is the everyday life of secret agents. Um, and I kind of think that's where the kind of like the idea of also the whole urgency of how the plot is structured, like within over a couple of days, span of a couple of days, is that it's basically, so during this week, Bond foiled nuclear Armageddon against London, against, uh, you know, uh, covert Nazis living within the British <laughs> high society. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, it must be Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just another Wednesday. Uh, hump day. Yeah. Hump day. Hump day, yeah. Anyway, we learn in these opening chapters a lot about kind of what Bond makes and what he's entitled to. He doesn't make a lot of money. Uh, It says here he took no holidays but was generally given a fortnight's leave at the end of each assignment in addition to any sick leave that might be necessary. When he was on a job, he could spend as much as he liked, but he basically made £2,000 a year. Which is not a lot. Well, equivalent terms is about 25000 in today's money. Um, huh. which, you know, I mean, that, that's a good amount of money. It's a decent salary. It's kind of like a starting teacher salary. And so it's not bad, but. So how, do, so how does he afford like a Bentley and another car and like the apartment that he has and all this stuff, you know, that's what I'm... That's what it says in the book. I mean, that's what he spends his money on. He spends his money on his cars because he doesn't have expenses, right? So basically 
when he's when he's between missions and he's in town and stuff, he spends basically all his money on his cars and stuff to keep the image. So I guess when he's not at work, I guess he's just going out womanizing and he wants to That's keep up exactly that player it. image. Yeah. But he really doesn't have the money to back it. He only has the money because the government gives him the money. He's kind of like a paid gigolo for the British government, basically. <laughs> Well, he's kind of like that. And when you get into the details of the things he enjoys, his food, his tastes, his cigarettes, like, you know, he has black oxidized Ronson lighter and he only smokes Moreland's of Grosvenor Street made special for him with Turkish Macedonian blend tobacco, right? Like, I mean, he's he's spending all of his money on 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 digestibles, which are themselves, I guess, uh, emblems of the upper class because he doesn't have anything else to spend his money on. It's also too how much of a cultural chameleon uh, in the way or imposter that he is too, because here he is at Blades, you know, where he would never ever get in ever uh, uh, unless unless M allowed him to come in, you know, as a guest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that that yeah, I mean that kind of kind of pushes us towards this Blades episode, and I think we should start maybe moving a little more swifter through the plot here. But um, <clears throat> you know, we get this info drop, which seems to be pretty blueprinted now into the James Bond novels. At least we've had three in a row, although they start differently in their own little ways and they give us different things. We always get, like we do in the films, a meeting in M's office where a shit ton of information is dumped on us about what Bond is going to be looking into. And yes. there's about six pages dedicated to Drax and where he came from. And as, I mean, you talked about the Battle of the Bulge and his injuries and he wakes up in a Brit in, in a hospital. And, and they, talks that long? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, he, you know, he's fed identities. And so he, he's basically waking up probably nervous about how he's going to get himself out of this situation. And instead they're asking him, who are you? And are you this guy? Here's a picture of a guy from Liverpool. Are you that guy? And they feed him identities and he can basically pick whoever the hell he wants to be to start his new life. Exactly. That's, and that's what he did really. Um, he, 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 he chose that he chose this identity. Are you this person? And they, 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 they just so gave him what he wanted. It was, it's a hilarious it is. It's really funny. But anyway, he, he follows uh, M along on that Monday night visit to Blades, and they have a really exclusive meal, and then they meet in the room for Bridge. And <clears throat> at first, like you were saying, Bond uh, kind of downplays Drax's cheating. He doesn't really want to publicly shame him because he respects him as a philanthropist, although he thinks he's a dick. He just wants to teach him a lesson and hopes that that lesson will be a self-corrected one. And, exactly. And then he just figures he's done his duty and he's helped M out and that's it because I think M's also coming at this selfishly he doesn't want some guy cheating at the card game that he's playing exactly no yeah and 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 making his club look bad and causing the scandal and it's just kind of like hurrum, hurrum, you know, like this is this this is not right this is not right at all we have to we have to resolve this immediately what is he thinking the idiots you know like yeah yeah is he, he is just, they're trying to kind of give him like kind of like a uh, a rap on the knuckles basically yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, it's funny too. I don't know if we want to talk about this now or at the end, but I'll just plant the idea here so we can come back when we do our angles soon. You know, a lot of critics had trouble with this book because they they weren't sure if it was a suspense thriller or if it was a detective novel. Because there's so much foreshadowing and dropping of clues and hints, Moonraker does kind of read more like a detective novel than a thriller. And I think so far a lot of the Bond novels read like detective novels, to be honest, the ones, the three that I've read. I think this one particularly. I mean, I just think that, well, I mean, okay, you get this expression or this this uh, this quotation from that chapter where he's uh, just 
getting ready to go to Blades. Uh, after we get a description of his hotel or of his apartment, which is quite a nice little look into Bond's life just for a couple of pages. But anyway, we get this expression here. Abroad was what mattered. He would never have a job to do in England, outside the jurisdiction of the service. Anyway, he didn't need a cover this evening. This was recreation. You know, you're given these kind of slappy on the head, um, ironic foreshadowing points that kind of like Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs to lead you somewhere, you know? Uh, oh, absolutely! Exactly. Like, hmm. Could this? So, what, this 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 was re, this was recreation. It's obviously going to ironically be the opposite of that, or, or lead into something ironically the opposite of that. Ah, and there's a lot of those little droplets throughout the first few stages of the novel. But Blades itself is a great section. I love this. Um, I love the setting of this club. Yes. I think it's it's wonderful. I love the dinner, the meal that they have. Uh, I love the looks that M gives Bond as he's just drinking this vodka and putting a bit of pepper in it, you know, to help with the. Uh, I mean, it's it's all it's it's over the top. But M, I think I think M just realized like Bond. To me, it's kind of what I have the feeling about Bond that they're describing so far is just that he's. Um, what are you doing? You're you're a British civil servant. You're a spy. You're a total <laughs> imposter in society, trying to look like you're something else when you're not. And you wouldn't be here if you weren't if you weren't who you if you weren't you know a civil servant of the British government. You're you, you know like it just seems like. And now you're becoming this very pretentious person who puts pepper in their in their vodka. You know, it's just it's not just any vodka either. It has to be you know particular. Is this um is this not uh, what Latvian vodka or something? Latvian or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, well, we get, a, we get a description when they reach the bridge table of Drax himself, and it's not a particularly attractive one. No, definitely not. It's almost like a, uh, uh, a, a werewolf with a clutched palate. A ginger <laughs> werewolf with a cleft palate, basically. And a monstrous mustache. Monstrous mustache, yes. Do you ever get the p- feeling how he describes about like how being, being like, kind of like a, uh, I don't know, like... Do you get a feeling that, in, in a way, how he was using Drax, since Drax turned out to be a Nazi, there's a lot of kind of Hitler-esque origins points to Drax in many ways, and how they describe him. You reckon? Yeah, like the the mustache being kind of like a person who like sucked on his thumb when he was a boy, yeah, and all this kind of stuff, being bullied as a kid, and no one liking him as as a young man, and all this kind of stuff, and then finding his freedom and and his and and his purpose in, in the army and and serving and whatnot, and. I don't know. It just kind of seems like uh, there's kind of some Hitler parallels with Drax here, which is kind of a hint, I think, at the at his at his Nazi reveal. Yes, and you know, you even get this his his nervousness and his nail biting points to some sort of hidden agenda as well. Oh yeah, of course, as like some kind of like pervert or you know, I was surprised he never mentioned clammy hands. To be honest with you, no, he well he didn't, but he did say that every fingernail was bitten down to the quick. Yeah, very nervous kind of person. But I think in terms of what Drax was doing, I think in his own way, he was probably n- nervous about, he had his own stresses about what he was doing anyways. Yeah, Bond, Bond does respect the way he dresses, though. He does respect the way he dresses, yes. Yeah, and thinks he, he thinks doesn't he has his choice in drink and his choice of cigars and, and whatnot, but he is definitely put off by the man or repulsed by the man in terms of his uh, aesthetics, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, here we get Bridge being the, the game in which uh, the deception or the cheat is discovered. I don't know if you want to go on about it, but um, I love the scene and I love the setting of, um, <clears throat> it's kind of funny actually, of Blades. It made me want to go and, and find out if there were any professional cribbage places still available to join. <laughs> and it turns out that there aren't, for me at least. 
But uh, the card game is what's used again to lure out the cheat. And it's, it's really, like we've seen previously, especially in Casino Royale, it's the card game that uh, is, is kind of like the, the precursor to the real engagement between hero and villain. Yes, exactly. It's 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 like the tete tete before the the final final sh- showdown. But this is kind of one of those scenes too that has kind of became um, formula in the Bond films too about you know Bond meeting the villain for the first time and the villain's like oh who is this guy he seems kind of interesting and and then Bond ends up like uh, seeing the villain for what he is or seeing he doesn't something like like about him and then Bond just pisses him off and uh, right at first glance you know yeah yeah. Okay, so we've got luxury food, we've got card games going on until the early hours of the morning, just another Monday night. Uh, Bond shows up after, after, he shows up to work the next morning after frustrating and embarrassing um, Drax, though he never calls him out as a cheater. No, he, he does not, but Drax gets the cheater. hint. Yeah, he gets the hint. Um, and he finds out, you know, he, he sees it through the cigarette case. I mean, do you really want to quickly go through that, or... Well, essentially, Drax is at the at the bridge table, and he lays his shiny metal cigarette case there, um, you know, j- just right on the table. And so, when Drax is, gets the cards in his hand and he's dealing them out, he can see the reflection of underneath the cards of who's being handed what. So then he can basically plan ahead in a way that most cheaters can't. You know, like cheaters take, usually take advantage of a situation right as it happens. Well, he can plan ahead based on what those card numbers are. That's right. And Bond uses a few of his tricks as well because he's the best gambler that the service has. And anyway, he gets he has One to get tr- tight. He has to get a little drunk in order to do this. And he tells yeah. M, he tells M that anyway, and it helps with his nerves. And he shows up the next day, described as but but I was going to say that, that I, was, I was about to go into that was that I did like the idea of how he gets drunk, but he takes another drug, Benzedrine, I believe it is. Yeah, again, uh, yeah. to kind of basically allow him to be alert at the same time. That's right. He's had Benzedrine in the three novels we've read so far. He has, yeah. It's kind of like, I guess it's like a tactic move. I mean, it allows you to be to get uh, drunk in terms of uh, believably appearing to be drunk so no one suspects you of doing things. But at the same time, the Benzedrine counteracts the effect, I guess, of the mental impairments. Yeah, I guess you're right. And just before M sends Bond out to um, assume this new position... Um, Bond is reflecting on the night before and he's speaking to M about it and he says he seems to put so much passion into his cards as if it wasn't a game at all but some sort of trial of strength. You've only got to look at his fingernails, bitten to the quick, and he sweats too much. There's a lot of tension there somewhere. Absolutely. And this is leading again to his reveal of, of being what he is. Is yeah. that, uh, And this is the only time that I think he feels that uh, him... He, Drax even says later on in his big villain's uh, spiel, you know near the end about how he that he actually like he didn't care that he was a cheat or or, or being dishonorable about that because he, they were he was playing against people who were beneath him and he loved doing it and i think him kind of you know n- you know nibbling his fingernails down to the quick and being very nervous in presentation shows that he was trying to hide something and he was using his behavior to kind of be so avert so that he could hide it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like he was veiling it. Yeah, he was acting more drunk than he really was uh, at the card game, certainly. Yeah, he was, he was. He was over the top, basically. Yeah, he was. And I think when he's over the top, he just because he's just like, I'll just be a total asshole instead. Yeah. 
And it's, it's not really until we're nearly 90 pages through the book, or more than that, really, I guess. I'm just flipping through it here. It's not until we're 100 pages through the book that Bond <clears throat> has to take it. I mean, chapter 9 is entitled Take It From Here. He has to take the mission and go somewhere else with it, right? That's right. So, I mean, let's, let's move away then uh, from London proper and go to the Moonraker site and uh, start talking about his relationship with Drax on the estate and when he meets Gala. Let's move into that. All right. So I guess we go into where, so Talon has been killed by Barch over Gala Brand, the um, special branch of Scotland Yard inspector who is disguised as a meteorologist for the Moonraker program. Um, and also as a way to keep her for her to keep an eye on Drax because he's an important British citizen um, to make sure everything is running smoothly, basically. So Bond takes Talon's place. He goes to the installation to the Drax estate and the Moonraker installation at Dover and essentially um, tries to insinuate his way into that uh, grouping of, of people. And. Here he meets Gallifran, and as I mentioned, she gives him a very frosty reception. Um, she just thinks he's just another one of those spies. One of one of those. Basically, she thinks she's basically she, how Fully describes uh, her, uh, her. I guess her her initial ambivalence towards Bond is that he's James Bond. That's essentially what. Uh, like, what other character? Like, it's funny how that whole whole that whole. There's a passage about how. Bond is, um, she sees Bond as this globetrotting spy type, so I'm like, oh, so he's James Bond then, because can you think of any other globetrotting spy of that time period? I, I think Bond was definitely one, one of those ones that was the first of that one. I mean, before yeah. then you have, like, the 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 adventure, the adventure serials and Flash Gordon and, and like, the, the detectives of noir fiction, but yeah. Yeah. was there a similar character like James Bond in the novels as well? I don't think so. Maybe like uh, Smiley and, and Le Carre. I, I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to rack my brain for it, but I can't. One's not coming to my mind. But but basically, she she accuses him of being James Bond, essentially. And I guess Bond sets the archetype of all spies is that he is it's a globe trotting, womanizing, cavalier lifestyle, and and she, and she thinks he's 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 frivolous, probably li 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 living off the you know. The uh, people's money and stuff, just as if we were accusing Bond of being kind of a, a poser, I suppose. Yeah, I guess so. But she's, I mean, she's in the mix here with Drax. She's kind of in the inner sanctorum, if you think of it. Yeah, and, the inner circle. And Krebs is the other guy we get, the henchman, who, and I really like this guy's character. I think he's interesting. He was a little bit interesting, yeah. I, but even though Fleming kind of just says, well, essentially, it's Peter Laurie. I mean, Fleming <laughs> even says Peter Laurie. That's how he, he looked like Peter Laurie. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm also, I also picture, and I know that the readers of the time didn't have this reference in mind, but I also picture uh, the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, uh, Tot, the uh, the yeah, uh, yeah, 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 the uh, German dude. Yeah, but, well, what sorry, the uh, black trench coat dude, dude. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I could, I could picture him for sure. Yeah, so Gallibrand is described as you might expect, very attractive, um, dark black hair. Um, I think every girl so far, every woman so far that's been described, we've we've got a pretty geometric description of her breasts. Yes, the firm and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> all that kind of shit, and uh, and her eyes, you know, and and then Fleming tries to wash it down with some sort of thing about the way she moves, and 
whatever, looks very smart in the blouse and skirt and all of that. I mean, it's like she, he's just repeating the same way. Like, he's not really being inventive with her. And Yeah, I think I, he was giving a lot of 16-year-old boys back then reading those books boners for sure. I think that was his, that was his goal. I guess so. Uh, there's only so much he can give, but <laughs> I don't – I mean, Fleming himself has said that these weren't for schoolboys, these books. That's true, but I think in many ways they they they, they, they probably – a lot of schoolboys probably read them though. Probably. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, anyway, like you were saying, uh, while he when he gets in there uh, as a replacement for this guy Talon and he starts sniffing around, uh, he starts to change his appreciation for Drax, especially when he's first shown the Moonraker rocket and he's told the, the lie basically about what they're all going to do, um, which is – and that's something we haven't mentioned yet. I mean this Moonraker rocket that Drax has invested his own money in, which he'll get back in destruction of London, is is, is being – heralded as the greatest rocket um, defeating all the other governments of the world, uh, or I guess militaries of the world, as it would reach speeds and break barriers while being able to deliver a payload unlike any other country. And so it was seen as the best weapon of defense in the growing Cold War. I can kind of see in a way many people thinking that this was kind of very far-fetched, you know, because we know at the time, like, the British didn't really have any kind of... I know there was a bit... They were supposed to get ballistic missiles, I think, like, in the late 50s or something along those lines. But in terms of, like, a space program or a rocket program, America and Russia were the forerunners of that. You know, we all know that. And Fleming decided to kind of give England... I guess a bit of patriotism in him a little bit. And yeah. His own alternate reality where the British have a very... Or developed, trying to develop their own space program... And I think he just—he was kind of interested in, and I guess as a curio, as as you you mentioned, to um, see what it would be like, you know, if Britain had something like that, and to explore the possibility of that, and the the, the I guess the the negative effects of that as well. Totally, and I think you're right on. And the, you know, we got live and let die, which we talked about uh, last month, where Fleming <clears throat> smears um, America pretty heavily and there is this real chip on his shoulder about britain which was once the center of the universe now losing its power militarily i mean world war ii and world war one destroyed britain it yes. collapsed the empire uh this is not far away from the raj and its failings in india and i mean every crown that it once held representatively around the world is starting to crumble and Ian Fleming, I think you're spot on. I think he wants to use his fiction to give England this sense of hope that it can develop, or Britain, the sense of hope that it can it can get back onto that competitive stage and it can step in the ring with Britain, or sorry, with uh, America and with Russia. But the Cold War is passing the United Kingdom by. Absolutely, they're basically on the coattails of America. I mean, that's 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 how it is. That's... And I don't. I mean, another thing that I don't know if there's anything in this, but. Remind me again of what the um, what the meeting was uh, after World War II between Stalin, um, Churchill, and Roosevelt. What was it? Was that Yalta? Yeah, Yalta. Thank you, Yalta. It was before the end of World War II because Roosevelt was still alive. Because remember, Roosevelt died. Oh shit! Of course it was. Sorry, man. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, if you think about it, right, the books kind of work in that sort of way because you've got you've got Smirsch, you've got yes. the Soviet interest. You've got America with Felix Leiter, and you've got Bond. I mean, you've got the same sort of thing going on. That's right. And there's a line later on that Drax, uh, when he when, when he was like explaining, you know, like 
living in England after the war and and uh, whatnot, and uh, how he was like how you kowtow to to the Americans, you know. And I think in that you could definitely see like Drax like using uh, sorry Fleming using Drax, a German, basically accusing England of you know like where's your balls, you know, like, yeah, and this yeah. is why he comes up with this space program idea, this Moonraker concept for the storyline is the British needs, like he wanted to really kind of keep the British end up, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think you're and right. Drax's accusatory line about, you know, kowtowing to, to the Americans, I think is Fleming, his own voice come coming through there in terms of, and also showing England as a confident, you know, nation, a worthy superpower, which it was in really, in, in reality, dissipating, greatly as you have mentioned you know with the fall of the of the british empire in world war one and world war two um arabia and then india and after world war two the idea of the moon is the, the idea of the moonraker rocket isn't just about confidence it's also almost like a inferiority complex using a very phallic symbol like a rocket you know what i mean yeah yeah you, you're spot <clears throat> sky rockets in flight <laughs> I was waiting for that. No, I, I was going to say that you're spot on with it. And it's politically, these rockets, the V2 development, whatever military exercise and rockets or, or the space programs you're thinking of, they were kind of like the um, the antis that you needed in order to get to the games table, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Those were the, the pay-ins. Uh, yeah, the chips. The uh, chips, absolutely. And if so you didn't one, have it's one, one, it's were, one big uh, bridge game. The Cold War is one big bridge game for, for uh, England or one big poker game. Uh, well, as good as that bridge scene was, we, you know, we, I don't think it matched the card games from earlier in the in the book, but or earlier in the in the series that we've seen so far. But anyway, Royale, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to bring it back there. Okay, so he sees the Moonraker rocket. He's finally taken to the rocket. Drax shows him the tour of it himself, and this this is where I first get a sniff of Hugo Drax being the first real Bond villain. And I mean real. Yes. Because, you know, we got Mr. Big, who is Mr. Big. He's just a crook. And he's a good, he's a fucking good crook. And we got Lashif, who's just trying to get himself out of trouble. Yeah, he's a double agent, but he's just trying to get himself out of trouble. Here we've got a guy who wants to show off the way he's going to destroy people. And in that sort of megalomaniacal way that we got the yes. film Bond guys who are like, this is the weapon that I'm going to use to destroy you. And he yeah. he even has these moments later when everything... Very Lex Luthor, classic Bond villain formula. Yeah, there's totally that formula about it. Do you want to do you wanna take us through, you know, um, when we meet Drax's uh, crew and the Moonraker itself? Do you want to go through that, that section? It, I think it's chapter 12, chapter 13 or something? Yeah. Chapter 12. So, so, yeah, so, so basically Drax arrives... So sorry, Bond arrives at Drax's estate. Uh, he's he's given a tour of the installation. When Drax meets Bond again after their <laughs> awkward night from from, uh, from uh, pre previously, um, Drax is, is civil enough and give and uh, you know and he just kind of goes along with it and you know like it doesn't matter. These people are going to be dead in a couple days anyways. I can put up with this and you know what? Maybe I'll kill this guy myself. I'll enjoy this. Like you don't know what Drax is thinking, right? Yeah. So. But, I mean, reading the book at this time, though, we don't know that Drax is what he is. We know there's something up with him, and why would he come back into the narrative? So there's definitely more to him than meets the eye than just being a cheater. You know what I mean? Yes. And so, But then we're introduced to the crew, like, who is responsible for killing Talon. So so Fleming is throwing uh, these different characters as, as suspects who could on Drax's team that could that could be, you know, the, the culprit. Um, 
that that are that are up to something. Like why was Talon killed? And this is where the sh- the book is like a detective story now because we're investigating the death of Talon uh, 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 essentially. And this investigation, little do we know, is going to lead to the threat of nuclear Armageddon against London, against England. And this is what it builds to. So here we meet the list of suspects. We meet uh, Krebs, the the Peter Lorre looking assistant of uh, of uh, Drax, who's kind of like managing all the workers. He's kind of like the uh, you know the assistant director on a movie set type, I guess, in the organization. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then we have you know uh, Walter, who is basically, as I mentioned, you know this brilliant Nazi like V two rockets scientist type, right? Which is very common. So then there's a little bit of suspicion on him. Then you meet Gala, who gives him, the, you know, the frosty reception, and you wonder yeah, about her too. Guess, is she on it as well? Is, I, is, is is she part of it as well, or did, did she conspire against Talon? Is this some affair that her and Barch had that went <clears> bad, or something like that? So I mean, there's all these different suspects and different motivations going on here. Yeah, and, I, I want to interject though, just for a second, at something. I mean, you're talking about how a guy like Dr. Walter, and even even. This German crew, these rocket engineers, they're not going to draw a lot of attention because, as you say, you know, the Axis power scientists did go and work for other nations. It was publicly known in some places. And, Operation Paperclip. And that's why the, the bartender or the, the pub landlord, when speaking to Bond, says that, um, oh, you know, he, he doesn't make much of the fact that the guy puts his arm in the air and says uh, – what was it? Hyle. Yeah, Hyle. He doesn't make much of it. He just says, oh, sometimes, you know, I guess these guys just don't forget the bloody words. And it's not strange to see these guys working now post-war in, you know, using using their expertise to help allied nations because it, it is happening. So there is true context to this. Absolutely. And you know what? Better Nazis than communists, right? Absolutely is right. You're right. Anyway, go ahead. Keep talking about the Moonraker. So, yeah, and I guess in this sense, too, is we get a sense of that Drax um, to Bond now is, is coming is coming out, is coming in a, in a, is shown in a better light because he sees Drax, the, the, the titan of industry, the administrator, the, the, who was able to uh, focus how he, Drax was using his intelligence and his daring do and his, and his intuitiveness to um, organize the whole Moonraker project. And Bond is very impressed by this. So immediately the initial suspicion and dislike that Bond had for him he kind of he's kind of writes off just just as kind of a, a, a of a social defect, and he sees you know the value of this man in British society because of what he does you know or yeah. what he is or what Bond perceives him to be doing, and so he's still on this point he is still there to investigate the death of Talon, and he's trying to find out what sort of inner sabotage is going on here. Is it the Russians working? Is it Smirsch? He has no idea that there's actually uh, a team of Nazi commandos who are attempting to. A long, a long game, basically, of creating this Moonraker program, investing all their money into it to fire it at London. And of course, who would think that at the time? You know what I mean? Yeah, you wouldn't think it. But Bond is fairly sure that Talon doesn't die because he loved Galibrand. No, and this is when he goes to the uh, when he's going when he goes to when he's now living in um, he, he's now staying in Talon's room. Uh, at Drax's estate, and he finds the filing cabinet. That's right. The, and he could tell that it was breaking open before, and you can see all the documents there, what Talon was looking at, and uh-huh. what he was viewing, the maps of the of, of the area, and also, of course, what the, the set of binoculars, the field glasses. Yeah. What was what was Talon looking at? You know, that night before he died. You know. That's right. And, it's, it's it's a well written part, actually. I I really like the opening sentence to that chapter. On Wednesday morning, Bond woke early in the dead man's bed. Like that's just a good sentence. 
definitely. It, it means automatically, I think, you're going to get into some sort of kind of really interesting um, expo- expo- exploration of who this Talon was. It's, it's a yeah. good setup line. Yeah, it is. And that's, like you say, that's where he investigates the... Uh, that's where the, he, he sees the employee documents and he's got, well, conceivably presumably uh, Drax has all the papers for all of his employees and they all seem to stand up, but there's something very strange about them all that, that Bond notes. And, you know, he's, he's very suspicious, but after seeing the rocket, he's still of a double mind because he is so impressed by it and he is blown away by that Moonraker. Yes. Um, it's uh, exactly like the suspicions are away from Drax right now. And he's just focusing on somewhere in his crew and trying to find out what Talon found out about someone in someone in the crew about possibly possibly a Russian spy and they dispatched him. And I think it's significant that like the, the whole Hitler thing definitely caught Bond's attention when Barch killed Talon when he when he learns this from the um, local pub uh, proprietor that there is something fishy going on with some of the Drax personnel, but it's not Drax himself. And Bond I think is easily impressed by um, gestures of grandeur and service and. Uh, uh, carrying and and results you know like bond is one of those people that we even when he when bond described when he first meets a girl she's like she seems very silly but then when he gets to know her uh, in, in like two paragraphs later when he gets talking when, when fleming describes bond talking to someone and all of a sudden he changes their mind about this woman she actually was a lot more intelligent you know like he always has this thing about he judges based off of first hand glance but then once he gets to know someone he changes his opinion so I think that's a very interesting um, trait that uh, Fleming has given Bond. Yeah. And you see it in this book, too. So anyway, I mean, th- things move on. And, you know, he and Galabrand end up working a little bit more closely. We're, we're going to soon get down to the, the cliffs and St. Margaret's Bay. But um, <clears throat> I did think that, you know, the way uh, she, she's a, you know, she, she's a special branch officer. And... I just don't buy that. I don't like the way Fleming writes her because, you know, although she acts all cool and classy and intelligent and she very well, you know, she is intelligent. Obviously, she operates these these gyros and she's a a meteorologist who produces actual results for a space program. So you know that she's she's not a bimbo, you know. No, she's not a bimbo. But, you know, then you get these things like Galabrand is thinking about Bond the night before. Um, and she's questioning him the same way he questioned uh, Vesper at the beginning of Casino Royale. But what good could he do down here without any beautiful spies to make love to? Because he certainly was good-looking. Galabrand automatically reached into her bag for her vanity case. She examined herself in the little mirror and dabbed at her nose with a powder puff. Rather like Hoagie Carmichael in a way, that black hair falling down over the right eyebrow. Much the same bones, but there was something a bit cruel in the mouth. And the eyes were cold. Were they grey or blue? It had been difficult to say last night. Well, at any rate, she had put him in his place and shown him that she wasn't impressed by dashing young men from the service, however romantic they look. They were just good-looking men in the special branch, or there were just as good-looking men in the special branch, and they were real detectives, not just people that Phillips Oppenheim had dreamed up with fast cars and special cigarettes with gold bands on them and shoulder holsters. Oh, she had spotted that all right, and had even brushed against him to make sure. (laughs) Come on! This is shit. Like... This woman might be intelligent. She might have certificates, but Fleming's not giving her any credit for that stuff. He's making her, he's building her up to just be another sappy, fall in love with Bond girl. I think he contradicts himself with his with her character several times in the narrative. Yeah, and I think it's I, th- I think it, 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 his contradiction ends up actually I don't know making her a lot more compelling than the previous two Bond girls, in my opinion. 
Right. Well, but, uh, we'll see how we get on. Um, let's move on. Uh, I'm just conscious of time, and I know we got a lot more to do. So let, let's just speed this up a bit. They they get themselves down uh, basically on a day of refilling. Right. They're, they're going to refill the fuel for the rocket and bond. And Gala decide to take a tour of the uh, a walking tour of the cliffs in the area, right? That's right. Um, you want to say anything about that? Well, this is where we get a very vivid description of the landscape here of the cliffs of Dover, and it's almost as as descriptive as an exotic uh, as any of the locales you know elsewhere that that he's done so far, like the Caribbean and Live and Let Die, and New York and Harlem, and uh, you know in the south of France and whatnot in Casino Royale. So in terms of locale, yeah, it was local and centralized for his English readers. But at the same time, uh, to me, I just painted, he paints a very beautiful picture of the bay. And, and for someone who lived on an island, you know, the first nine years of his life and was very used to Newfoundland and uh, Eastern Atlantic Canada and whatnot, uh, he, and someone who's been to Scotland and the Isle of Skye as well. I mean, I think to me, he, he, he paints a very pretty picture. And I, 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 I don't think that weakens it as a location, personally. No, neither do I. I think it's nicely rendered. And I actually am jumping a little step ahead too quickly because uh, I should just say this, that before Bond and Gala go out on their golden day, as the chapter is entitled, uh, he ends up discovering Krebs snooping in his room. And he yes. gives, him a gig, gives him a big kick in the balls. Yeah. So then we start. Then we start to realize that Krebs might be part of it, and Drax right. knows there's something up with him. But is he just? Is, is he a spy, or is he just like this, just uh, this awkward personality? That's kind of like this, this uh, antisocial personality that just needs to get off the team right away because he's just embarrassing to have there. And <laughs> yeah. that kind of seems to, what seems to be the deal with Krebs, you know? Yeah. Well, ba- Drax pretends that he is an embarrassment and promises to take him into London. And make sure that he, you know, he's not working on site anymore. Of course, which is not what happens because the very next night is when all the other stuff happens in London. But anyway, uh, yeah. So Bond and Gala go for their walk, and uh, there's a shout out for Julius Caesar uh, at the beginning of that chapter about, like you said, where that was a corner of England where Caesar had, had come first landed two thousand years before. That's right. And there might be something in that, uh, if that's why Drax chose that space. Maybe, maybe not. I think it gave him proximity to the city, London, that, you know, was beneficial. But anyway. Not to mention that Fleming had, 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 had like a cottage in that area anyways. Yeah. So he knew the area quite well. Yeah. I mean, I sensed, you know, you, you talked about this moment of flirtation between Bond and Gala with the flowers and about pulling the petals off the flowers and all that stuff. Um. I really like that. I think that for one of the first times, Bond really is enjoying himself. And I'm reading him enjoying himself and believing it. Yeah, I think he likes, I think you can tell that he likes Gala. He has a bit of, they have a nice, like, kind of like a Spencer Tracy, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn kind of give and take here, you know, just a little bit, you know, some Hoxian dialogue that it just seems they have like a good rapport with each other. Yeah. And I think, I, they I do. think he could tell that he was enjoying himself and, uh, very playful almost too like when they're swimming in the ocean and stuff and you know and he innocently suggests it and then all of a sudden he's like playing tag with her in the water by kissing her and all this sort of stuff you know this flirtatious play that they have you know in the water and leads to them sunbathing and peace and harmony and and all of a sudden of course interrupted afterwards yes of course it is and i i like that i agree with you um i think it is good i like him more as a literary character when he is playful with her i think it's it's fun to watch him and I, I don't never really got a lot of fun from Bond when he was with Solitaire. 
I never bought that he loved Vesper. I never did. Uh, we talked about that. You no. know, when we looked at Daniel Craig's you now Daniel Craig's Bond might have loved left yeah, Vesper, but but that's that's a different thing altogether. It is anyway. I still think that she's a bit gormless when it comes to being an agent. I like I like the interplay and I like the fun and I like the flirting, but I still just read um, I still just read young woman from her like gormless young woman. Like <clears throat> he's talking about why don't you have a bath, you know, like or why don't you bathe in the water and come come wading with me? And she, Gala's eyes lit up. Um, Do you think I could? She asked doubtfully. I'm frightfully hot. But where are we going? What are we going to wear? She blushed at the thought of her brief and almost transparent nylon pants and brazier. To hell with that, said Bond. You must. That's have true. That's definitely not the mindset of a Scotland. No, it's not the inspector. fucking mindset of an agent. Like, does Fleming really want me to take her seriously or not? Like, this is, comes back to that contradiction you're talking about in her character, the way she's rendered. Sometimes yeah. she's smart and intelligent, and she's going to save the day at the end with her gyro counters. But here, she's just as a helpful little or a helpless little. Uh, victim you know to bond and, and bond bond just keeps playing at her and basically she ends up running out naked and kind of giggling about it you know yeah anyway and all these fucking adverbs i don't like the way he uses these adverbs <laughs> oh those these fucking adverbs eh we got nervously first, we got our first f-bomb here folks <laughs> nervously gingerly softly like what <laughs> come on if this girl's an agent she shouldn't be tentative about anything she's doing with him she's had special yes. training she's had special training in dealing with this shit there's at least two in instances in this in this novel where i'm told of her special training and now here she is cowering before this hoagie carmichael like guy <laughs> anyway you know, i looked at the picture of hoagie carmichael and i don't know <laughs> and how's this for a clumsy description right the kiss had not been mentioned but Gala's efforts to preserve an atmosphere of aloofness had collapsed under the excitement of examining a lobster that Bond had dived for and caught with his hands. Me, Tarzan, you fucking Jane. <laughs> like, that's what this is, right? Like, oh, look at that strong man catching, catching lobsters with his hands. And any, any, any chance I had of holding my strength has <laughs> just been melted by the, the swooning masculinity of the gesture. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Melted lobster butter. Mm. Fuck me. Anyway, I'm you know I'm finding this bullshit. I'm I'm finding it very humorous. But don't tell me she's an agent that's going to save the world. But she did. And I, I listen. I'm not trying to say that women have to be or men have to be painted in a certain way. But be consistent. And I don't he, think Fleming is consistent with her character. No, he's not. It's almost like she's a different character in this instance as opposed to the rest of the book. I felt even though I enjoy seeing Bond at play, I think this was very detrimental to her character, personally. And yeah, I agree too. Right. So the rock slide, the explosion. This is not an accident. No, dynamite from above, most likely. Yes, and we know that Drax and or Krebs were behind it because when Bond and Gala make their way back to the estate, the dinner table is set only for three. And there is no, uh, or there's this moment of mouth opening awe from Drax. And his food slips out of his mouth, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, and they're all partying, and, all drink and Krebs is there drinking wine at the table. and Yeah, he's described as, I like the description there, though. Like, where, like the way he's described, because uh, Krebs is the last one to catch on to the fact that he's there. 
Yeah, Krebs had been in the act of drinking a glass of red wine, and the glass, frozen against his mouth, poured a thin trickle down his chin and thence onto his brown satin tie and yellow shirt. Like not, These guys were not expecting them to walk through the door. Definitely and that not. Is, that's a very cinematic moment. You can see Connery, Moore, Brosnan coming in after being supposedly killed and, you know, straightening their tie while these guys are all just like, what? <laughs> so, um, you want to pick up from there and say anything about... Uh, you know, the next day. Well, the next day, um, I, they decide just before the big launch occurs, the, 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 in, in the following day, in the morning, it's the morning, I, I believe, is when the launch is going to occur. So this is the day before the launch, right? Yep. Uh, so they all, everyone has to go into town, basically, for the final preparations and, 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 and all this. And Drax has to go into town and get some things done, some errands. And uh, Gal is going, going to come into town as well, as his bond's going to go back to the ministry, um, Regent's Park, and, you know, everyone's going to ch- going to check in and let everyone know that the operation is going as smoothly. And so, but this is when the suspicions occur for Gala when she realizes that, A, well, someone tried to kill her, and B, that the calculations that she made um, doesn't exactly equal the rocket going into the North Sea at all. And well, the, the calculations are quite wrong. Exactly. So she needs to double-check them, right? Because... Because Drax assures her, yes, they're going to be fine, but the, but what she's overhearing just doesn't make any sense. So I was just I guess I'm just just doing her duty as an inquisitive and something just not feeling right. And because of the the added attack to, the the attack on her life the day before, she decides to while Drax is on his way while while accompanying Drax on the way back to London, um, she decides to pull for his pocketbook, his notebook, yeah. and going into the gas station as a pretense. She examines the pocketbook and finds that the calculations are wrong, wrong, wrong. Something's very wrong here, right? And so then she has – it's a totally different area. She realizes that the target, in fact, is in the North Sea, but the calculations lead to London. And, of course, trying to put the pocketbook back, um, she is captured by she's, – she's captured by – she's caught by Krebs. And, uh, and now she's a hostage with, with Drax and Krebs in the car. Yes. And – here you see now that Drax is definitely up to something. Like something is not not work, something is not uh, is not right here at all. That's and right. She realizes in horror that the Moonraker rocket is going to be launched at London, and then all of a sudden they all speak in German and like, uh oh. So I guess it's uh, something something else is going on here. And then you think about the story about Drax being found in World War Two, and things start to connect, right? Yeah, and and everything starts to speed up quite quickly from this point, and that's where it kind of takes off, like. Uh, <clears throat> kind of like the the denouement, right? I mean, the climax is almost yeah. yeah and, and I did just... find interesting though how like Gala's you, you do see this written through Gala's perspective, and I don't think you've really seen this since like the previous like even in Casino, even in Live and Die, you don't have a chapter seen through the perspective of say of Felix Leiter at all. You only hear about what happens to Felix Leiter or what he sees. It's still in the first two Bond books, almost all through Bond's perspective. But here you have a chapter of, of um, Gala on her own doing this investigation. And this is one of those chapters that I found that Fleming wrote really well and made her kind of a much more interesting character, a risky, patriotic, uh, tough girl, you know? I, and I think it contradicts that previous chapter, the silliness of the previous chapter, you know? Well, okay, I, I'm going to disagree with you here. And that's fine. Like, I think that's great that we can disagree on this and that you're getting something else from it that I'm not. I don't see that. I mean, I, I think what we've got here is is the fact that for 1955, this is probably as strong a woman as Fleming is going to write for us. 
Because, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah but I, you know, I, so we are in agreement. It's just, it's just uh, how positive of, of a thing this is, I guess, is the disagreement. Yeah, but I still think it's ridiculous that she's su supposed to be trained as an agent because she's being constricted here by throat, and and she's <clears throat> letting out these these terrible cries, and you know, tears coming down her cheeks, and suddenly well, she's only she trained to a certain extent, right? I mean, like. Yeah, five, I, think back I never, then, I never they, got the impression. I never got the impression that she's being held in this car with like a death grip around her throat. She's just been bound, and with all her strength, she's heaving and fighting against these two guys or these two arms of Kreb that are holding her. But then she starts to hiss at him and spit and cry. Like it's, I don't know. She's a fucking agent, man. Like if, she, if she's an agent, even by that that time standards. She needs to be able to defend herself, and she's got nothing here against these guys, and she's just described as a victim again. True, true. I, I suppose. I'm not I guess trying I'm to change just, I, I guess again, this uh -huh. is me. This is me allowing a bit of social context to realize that this was at the time that this was written, so this is the best you're possibly going to get. So I'm a kind of I'm looking at glass half full as opposed to glass half empty here. Okay, that's fair, and I think that I think you're right. We're we're both looking at it from different way, but we see in the same context at least. Exactly. Well, during the um, – <clears throat> oh, yeah, we should say that a couple of chapters before this, or maybe it's the previous chapter. I can't remember. Bond uh, – Fleming has this kind of um, – this kind of jarring – I don't know if that's really the right word, but he has this description of Bond admiring a vehicle. And then it talks about how – or then he talks about how Bond had once dabbled on the fringe of racing and how he once was going to become a racer. Uh, race car driver and of course that's going to become convenient later when he rides his mark four bentley at like a hundred miles an hour with just a pair of goggles on in the in the in the night time right yeah going after drax on uh yeah. going through the wheel you know going back to dover and that poor poor young man who gets uh mowed off the road yeah he's a he he the poor young guy f flies off into the hedge and dies but then we've got the bullwaters shout out i live the bullwater i know i was like just laughing and laughing to that whole sequence, the Bullwater shout-out, complete with a whole stunt sequence <laughs> of, like, cutting off the, the Bullwater's paper uh, yeah. rolls and rolling down the cliff. And it's just, it was just so surreal and crazy, you know? And It uh, was. It was kind of like seeing a bit of our life thrown <laughs> in there. We, we should probably clarify that Bullwater's was a company um, that both, our, well, our grandfather worked for. My other grandfather worked for Bullwater's as well, my dad's dad. And um, Bowwater's, you know, big. Eric Bowwater was a, a merchant and an industrialist who kind of shaped pulp and paper industry, not just in uh, England, but around the world. And, uh, you know, set his footprint in Newfoundland and Atlantic Canada, particularly. And then, of course, had ships going all around the world. And it was funny to see his paper on the back of this lorry, this articulated lorry. <laughs> that, that Krebs and Krebs what kind of a fucking mad guy is he because <laughs> Drax just says jump out onto the truck and cut off the rolls of paper and so okay he's like, like he's like Gobinda in the Octopussy film yeah it's almost like yeah Gobinda yeah or um it's like he's about to see him he's like he's like yeah vote my hair and then just basically it takes his he's like barefoot jumping from the car onto the to, onto the lorry and then, <laughs> yeah. and cutting it, you know? And you know, there's times where I talk about, like, to the Fleming novels, yeah, they're kind of different from the Bond films. And then you have a moment like this going, maybe yeah. not really, you know? And I like this. I did really yeah. like... I like this sequence because I thought it was written just believably enough. It was just believably enough. And I criticize myself here because I'm enjoying this and I'm going along for the ride, but 
I'm getting angry about how how Gallibrand is represented. And so I know that I'm I know that I'm being a little contradictory maybe by my own principles here. Like I should be judging everything by the same way you are with the kind of glass half open, realizing I'm reading a James Bond novel. You know, I should I should do that, but I don't think that you have to write your action sequences from a, a realistic point of view always. But I think the characters should be render a little more believable. And so far I'm not I'm not having a good time with Gallibrand. Fair enough. Anyway, anyway, right. So we have. I'll to... give it this. Gallibrand is a better name than Holly Goodhead. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. No comment. Um, so we get the Bullwaters shout out. We get this great car chase, and eventually they end up back at the site because it's. Well, I'll let you take over. So basically, the these uh, these rolls of of uh, of newsprint that uh, Krebs cuts off the Bullwater lorry, uh, essentially. Um, careens into Bond's car, his Bentley, and drives it right off the road. And of course, much like in Casino Royale, where we have captured Vesper, and now we have Bond and driven off the road, he is now a prisoner of Drax and Krebs. So he's taken back to the installation at uh, Dover. Right. And when they get there, um, it's th- there's a couple of different things that happen that are quite interesting. I want to talk about a couple of them, but you want to just quickly gloss over it? Well, from what we learn is that Drax does the classic again showing himself that he is the first true bond villain uh so to speak yes. by giving a big spiel about who he is we learn that he was one of the commandos that they used in the ardennes offensive to disguise themselves as british and american soldiers to to uh penetrate radar installations and just cause a whole bunch of chaos we learn that he was um wounded from this explosion and that he woke up and people thought he was a british citizen and then he just used that to his advantage all from the very beginning going across the world and, and reconnecting with all his commandos like Krebs and essentially uh, hiring Dr. Walter, make it, being easy with those connections. It was all basically a whole elaborate plan to allow England to fund their own annihilation, basically. Yeah. And it's, and so, so again, you see Drax, the improviser, the, the administrator the, with a chip, you know, this person with a chip on his shoulder who's able to, you know, revenge is a, is a, is a dish served cold. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. just, it creates this long game and he tells this all through this, you know, he does this great villain kind of spiel to bond, you know, about his master plan and everything to him. And, and this is that, this is, this is in the laboratory at the bottom of the installation where the rockets about to, to, to be taken off in a few hours um, at, uh, in, in the morning. And so the whole point is that once the rocket uh, ignites, they're all going to be burned to death. Uh, yeah. Gal and bond are going to be burned to death in the chamber below. That's right. And uh, I, I, in another moment of this sociopathic, all-revealing Bond villain, the first really of his kind, uh, Drax tells Bond that my entire life story, which I'll give you a bit of right now, uh, is filed with lawyers in Edinburgh. Yeah, that was yeah. That's kind of that was kind of it. Was kind and that's of how yeah. That's how they get the story about about Drax. Like they managed to find out his whole story. Because Drax's plan was, of course, not just to destroy the world, but then to have his story revealed for the motherland or the fatherland and uh, be some sort of big media success as well. Anyway, I, I thought that was kind of weird. but Well, I think Drax wanted, wanted, wanted to let people know that about what happened because he obviously had to escape right beforehand after, after all this happened because he was going to escape on the Russian sub, right? Yes, of course, yeah. 
So he had to leave England and stuff like that. So I guess he was just a way for him to let them know, let the world know that it was him that that, that did this. This is the bullied young young German boy, you know, living in England uh, on the boarding school, being bullied and all and, and whatnot, getting back, you know, at everyone, you know, it's a big F you to England as a whole. Yeah. And I did like, I like the way that his, uh, I like the way that his reveal, if you call it that, or his, his acknowledgement or his, uh, his story when he tells it to Bond is structured. And I think that this is a nice point of Fleming's writing. He, he structures the sentences in ways that kind of reflect a mania. I don't know if you noticed that, but he says like, for five years, I lived for money and I was brave as a lion. I took terrible risks. And suddenly the first million was there. Then the second, then the fifth, then the 20th. I came back to England. I spent a million of it and London was in my pocket. And I went back to Germany. I found Krebs. I found 50 of them. Loyal Germans, brilliant technicians, all living. It's almost like he's had this thing, pressure cooking inside of him, this story. And as, yeah, soon, and as been... soon as he tells it, he's just like, boom, 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 boom. Like, like almost like an automatic weapon, just firing it out. He's so proud. And you're getting, yes. he's, you're getting descriptions of his saliva that's and, and the sweat's pouring off his face. Like he's, yeah, he's almost it's having a big, an orgasmic experience as he, as he talks this. Yeah, because he, he's been biting his nails, as, you, as we've said, the whole time, right? Like he's, a, he's like a it's pressure building and building and building. And now he has a chance to release and it's just, oh, so good. And I think unlike most big, you know, famous, the talking villain trope, this one I think really works in the context of the story. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm not. I'm not disappointed by this at all. I like the reveal, and it's necessary in constructing the blueprint, or I should say, shaping the blueprint that is going to come later on. But this guy is not a Blofeld. I, I mean, we're coming at it not knowing the Blofeld of the books yet, but he's he is more off the rails, I guess, a little more unhinged than yeah. He's, more, he's, more yeah he's, un, he's unhinged for all of his. Uh inferiority complex about things about his anger his chip on his shoulder towards england which does not just glisten from his own patriotic you know jingoism you know you know it comes from a personal perspective you know and uh uh deep down you know of of his resentment and whatnot and this is just his great moment to tell all those people who laughed at him who made fun of him and who who did this to him it gives him a very psychologically complex um motivation that i think kind of brings him not just in terms of like he's just not that he's a megalomaniacal kind of villain, but I don't think he's a bland megalomaniacal villain. I think he's quite interesting. Yeah, he is and, interesting. Uh, I like the way Bond deals with it too, and that's also very cinematic in the way it's written because you you get this conversation where Bond kind of responds to everything Drax has been spitting at him, and he says he just talks about his ogre's teeth and oh yeah, I would have figured that someone you know who was made fun of like that would come up with something as stupid as this and he he really downplays it and that's what Drax doesn't want Drax wants to be considered yeah. the genius Drax he, wants it all right yeah yeah Bond is just like just just saying that's like so basically you're you're just having a tantrum like you know like he's 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 dealing him with like a, a, a like a tantrum wielding child you know like he's condescending to him i mean he even calls him a kraut you know like that's right yeah he does indeed and um, he dehumanizes him. He, uh, he 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 just dismisses him. You know. Yeah. Well, you're just a Jerry in the end. That's all. Just a Jerry. Wow. Okay. Well. Well, Drax uh, then takes Bond and Gala, puts them in the room, and basically binds them, and uses blowtorch uh, or intends to. But Bond manages to kind of distract them away from it and waits for the gas to burn out. And they eventually use the blowtorch to escape. 
and then they fake their escape outside the window by tying a bunch of shower curtain together when really they hide in the exhaust vents. And they hide in the exhaust vents because they don't think they'll be detected there as easily and that'll buy Galabran time to change the gyro uh, readings. And in the process, they get hit with a steam gun, right? You want to talk about that? Well, essentially what happens is that they're hiding in the vents because they want to be able to get out so they can change the gyros once the um, um, the uh, launch be once the launch begins, right? So that they won't notice when the after the final preparations are done, there's a moment to get in, change the change the uh, gyros before the Moonraker launches. Yeah. And and so that uh, Drax will think that the missile will hit London when in fact it will go into the North Sea. That's the whole plan, right? To kind of humiliate Drax once again, right in the middle of his big press day, you know, that, that he's about to have. Okay, so... And uh, and so what happens is that they're hiding in these vents, and once they once Drax has realized that the America, that the British has, that the um, Bond and the girl have escaped, um, they decide to, you know, flood the, uh, the exhaust vents with the hot water and steam. And just for the, just in terms, just, and, and so... There's this whole sequence where Bond and her have to like she has basically be wrapped under Bond's own clothing together, you know, yeah. <laughs> creating more kind of this forced sexual tension here uh, of a situation where they have to to survive to get you know by holding on to each other you know in some sort of um, scantily clad way, <laughs> you know, to survive this particular situation. Yeah, and I kind of find this funny. I don't know if you if you caught this, but. In the film version of Doctor No, the first Bond adaptation, um, same kind of thing. Yeah. At, at, there's a scene at the Crab Key installation where Bond is doing a similar thing. Yes. He's crawling through the exhaust vents, but it's just him on its own. Yeah. And to me, it's a much more thrilling and suspenseful sequence uh, than than how this was rendered in the book, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you, and there are some connections there. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting the Doctor No because I remember reading that and really enjoying it back in the day. I've heard that Dr. No is, 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 yeah, a lot of people say of, of the Fleming's novels, Dr. No is one of the best. Anyway, we'll, we'll see when we get there. But yeah, okay, so basically, although they get burned and blistered, they escape. And Bond um, <clears throat> and Gala succeed in replotting the course of the Moonraker. And the final chapters of the book, or the well, second final chapter of the book, I think it is, the penultimate one, is kind of almost like uh, a radio or TV correspondence coverage of the events that happen. <laughs> It's almost how cinematic how it's done. Like you can picture like the cutting and the editing between Bond and her in the shower. Um, you know, you know, just hoping to survive the blast and you know when the rocket goes off and all this yeah. sort of stuff. And uh, you know that that whole sequence and and cutting back between the uh, the announcer going on and you kind of you can just visualize it cinematically that whole sequence. Yeah. And I think this is really where the screenplay aspect of Moonraker probably comes into play. Hey. I think you're right. There are a couple of moments and. Some extended conversations, too, where you can't help but think that it's kind of screenplay written. Um, anyway, they succeed, and in that kind of anticlimax of humor, the, uh, <clears throat> the rocket goes into the North Sea and basically creates such a surge and explosion that uh, the submarine in which Drax is escaping with his German crew, um, well, it basically it doesn't capsize, but it sinks and everybody dies. And... That's that's kind of funny in a Monty Python kind of way. <laughs> it is. It kind of to me. I find it kind of disappointing in a way because I just found I, I felt Drax deserved a better ending. I mean, here's a guy who put out this great plan. You know, this great, great, huge plan to, to uh, destroy London, and then it just kind of just like 
<laughs> I don't know. Like in many ways, maybe it's fitting because this whole it's it's, it's this idea of Bond kind of just laughing. It just makes Drax a laughable figure almost in many ways. Like yeah, he was the first kind of Fleming Bond type villain, but that we that that we're familiar with. But at the same time, yeah. Well, anyway. It, that's, it, 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 it's just how it it's just how it piffles out, you know, like yeah, you know, it's just kind of, anticlimactic is definitely the word for it. Yeah, it's like the last bit of air that's pushed out of a whoopee cushion. Exactly. Yeah, you know, like wah, wah. And uh, anyway, so he gets himself dead, and Brit- Britain covers it up because they don't want anybody recognizing, especially in their in their their predicament that. They were duped, not just by the Russians, but by a German working with the Russians. Yes. And so they cover it up as a great disaster. And wasn't he a great man and a great philanthropist that will be missed? And, oh, where will we be without our space race? And I, I have an idea that we're going to get – or where will we be without our weapons? And I got an idea that this is where we're going to see the American uh, friendship grow considerably in the series. But I can see – yeah, I, I can see well, that. That, 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 that. That's a good branching out point for sure. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. But basically, creating a fiction is much, much better than publicly admitting that Drax duped everyone. Yes, duped everyone and also threatened them with nuclear Armageddon. Yeah. I mean, that would have caused massive panic and changed society, I think, that whole yeah. thing happening. And then the Prime Minister calls Bond to thank him, but M doesn't let him talk to him. Instead, he just says that was the Prime Minister and kind of has his gruff little responses. I like the honesty that kind of humanizes the luck in this scene because it is just from, you know, it's a series of lucky things that made all of this come together. Like if if he didn't, if he said to M, oh, I'm kind of busy Monday night, I've got a date, then none of this would have happened. If he didn't go to Blades and spot him out as a cheat, then he would never have pursued it, you know, in that sort of a way. And and, and and by not pursuing it, London would be gone. Yeah, precisely. And so I, um, I like... Um, unless Gala figured out, somehow figured out about the, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 um... Yeah, well... Variables, right? The geographic variables. Even if she did, it's unlikely that she would have... Well, who knows? Maybe she would have changed them. But I would have thought it's unlikely that she could have changed them if she was, you know, being brought out of the scene or if, uh, who knows, who knows what would have happened. But I, I just yeah. like the fact that, that Fleming isn't too proud to say shit like this sometimes comes down to luck. And it's like a Ruby Goldberg m- machine, you know, like the, uh, this one thing falls and the, the marble falls and goes down the chute and then the boot kicks it and then roll waters yeah. the plants, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the prime minister wants to decorate Bond as well, but he can't because he's, you know, of his, of his job. And so he just calls to say thanks. But she is, um, Galabrand is going to be decorated in some capacity, some sort of promotion for her. And then they go on their date, uh, kind of. But it's in this date where she, like you said at the beginning, decides to go with her fiancé. It turns out that that ring she was wearing wasn't a joke. It wasn't a cover. It was true. She has a fiancé. And the book ends... With this paragraph, he touched her for the last time, and then they turned away from each other and walked off into their different lives. And that's pretty much it, right? Yep. Just just another day, moving on, their different lives. You know, it kind of goes in the whole theme of the novel. I kind of think about just the day-to-day stuff that happens. That you, you, I think the whole idea of, like, this chain of events that occurs between if Bond had not gone to this poker game, this very kind of bland, this, not bland, but this very kind of unimportant event, you know, just to, you know, this indulgence just to find out this guy is cheating or not. 
then none of the stuff that happened would lead now. It's almost like chaos theory, you know, like how yeah, it works. It is. It is. It's like it, it's exactly that. Um, and I like that. I like that Fleming didn't try to make it more important in that way. I like that he suggests through his fiction that these crazy things can sometimes just be just be revealed and solved by luck. And I know Bond is Bond. Obviously, once he gets on this path, he has the skill set to make things happen. But it's it's equally true that sometimes big problems can be solved by simple, you know, um, fatalistic interceptions. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And, uh, you know, that made me think about something. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, uh, there was an episode of The Big Bang Theory where Sheldon is talking about how Raiders of the Lost Ark, the storyline, did not necessarily need Indiana Jones in the story at all. Because regardless, the Germans would find the Ark, the Covenant, and yeah. they would open it up, and they would all be killed and destroyed by it. True. That's very true. I do remember that. I think that in this case... Bond is still necessary because he helps Galabrand do the best at her job. That's true, yeah. So there's definitely, it just goes to show that, I mean, yeah, in a sense of narratives, like this character could do this one thing and then not be necessary. But I think deep down, if you look at, for example, Rare the Lost Ark as a story, I think there's elements that the, char the, the character of Indiana Jones, actions that he's taken led to something, that led other things to happen as well. So I think it's kind of stupid of someone like Sheldon to say, like, you know, without this character in the story, things would have been different, but that's not true. And I think what Fleming is saying here is that it's the little actions that we take that create other chain reactions to occur. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And it's all about the, it's like, as we said, it's the chaos theory. It's how like one event can trigger another event that leads to another. And it's just kind of and, and, and interesting how like the, the, the things that we build up on and the, uh, and the dreams that we have or the aspirations that we have and how they can sometimes lead up to becoming nothing at all and how like these big events that we perceive can be covered up so easily or how these big plans that we make like Drax's can just like fall apart based on just these small interventions you know yeah it's 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 the trickling of fate it's the it's the uh, the, the 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 caprice of fates of, of the fates I guess if you look at it from a literary sense well Josh um that's us it's time to talk about our angles for Moonraker <laughs> want to start all right so i'll dive into the uh, adversaries and allies uh, a for our angle so i think drax is the best bond villain so far um nazis make great villains and the idea of one of the ardennes offensive ss officers trained to impersonate british and american officers being mistaken for the real mccoy and using his influence to build a doomsday device to use against england is quite inventive um, I also like the idea that he's a product of his own childhood insecurities that gave him a chip on his shoulder, the boarding school nostalgia, perhaps Mr. Fleming. I don't know. Um, so he has a great, so in terms of a villain, we have a great villain overall through the entire thing. Very entertaining, very com more complex than what we've seen from the previous two books. Um, so in terms of the allies, we have um, Lilia Ponsonby, um, I think who could have 
been a bit more developed, but I was kind of interested in her at first and they never really got into her. And I'm not sure if we'll see her again, but you know, then we have Gala being an assistant, uh, Valence, the Scotland Yard a detective uh, superintendent. He was very well sketched as well. The administrator of Blades, um, a different, very good cast of characters overall that I think pop populated the story and added to the whole, to, to the whole kind of like, to the whole, machine of the British intelligence and and all the all the agencies working on this and you kind of really felt that whole um all those machines and their parts working together smoothly so as a whole you know and, and in terms of the villains as well the adversaries I mean Krebs was like what was 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 a was really good a Peter Laurie as I, we said character come to life um Walter seemed kind of interesting in his own way so I think Fleming had a really fun time with with the villains in this and I think I did too, and I and I really enjoyed them. And as a whole, they were nefarious, they were menacing. There was something really, there was something um, really entertaining about them. And I, as I said, the allies in this story, I think, were quite useful as, as a whole. Every element of the characters seemed to work quite well into the narrative. And to me, that brings it to a four point five out of five. Okay. Well, what's next then? Narrative. Narrative. Um, I find this an improved version of Casino Royale. Um, with the Moonraker Doomsday plot kind of grafted on. I like the administrative banality of Bond's office life, um, how there's just another day for him. Um, the romantic twist at the end was kind of cute too, refreshing in a, in a way, um, and brings up some, some good points. Um, overall, I give the uh, narrative of Moonraker, I, I give it, um, I, was kind of, I was kind of wavering back and forth, but I think overall, I, I think I like the twist at the end and, I think there was some great events in the plot, but I found again, I found there was aspects from like if even the bridge scene and the car chase scene were kind of improved versions of Casino Royale. So I kind of, I find that kind of a little bit of, of originality in that regard. So I have to give it maybe three and a half out of five over out of five. Okay. Girls. Girls. Uh, Lily, as I said, seemed like she could be interesting, but Fleming uses her as an archetype. Galabrand, I found as we have, we already discussed her. I found her kind of refreshing from compared to the previous two Bond girls. But again, there's a contradiction in terms of her writing um, of where we have her, her, her showing being very intelligent, adept at what she does. And then all of a sudden being a helpless damsel in distress in the next moment. So, you know, she, she's very patriotic, willful, decisive at some things. But in the writing, unfortunately, she kind of um, is contradictory in terms of she comes to come at moments where she becomes like a, a simpering girl again, you know, yeah. and that kind of takes away the believability of her being like someone working for Scotland Yard. Because if you're working in intelligence with MI6, I can see them, you know, someone like Gala being that way because they're more trained for intelligence operations more so than if you're Scotland Yard, you're a detective, you're essentially a cop. And Correct. I didn't get that hardness from her in her silly girl scenes, you know? Okay. Maybe I expected her to be a bit more butch about in character as opposed to, uh, a, as, as we said, a kind of, frivolous in, in certain moments that were kind of contradictory to the character that Fleming was trying to portray. So I give her, because I found her more adaptive than the more, not sorry, I found her more uh, believable, I sense, than the, or not believable, but a stronger female character than the previous two incarnations we dealt with. I give her four out of five. Okay. Uh, Look, locales, locations, settings. 
Uh, three and a half, at, three two point five out of five. Not very exotic, but I like the idea of Dover being the epicenter where English power was almost wiped off the board. And you can tell that Fleming put some passion in describing the Weald, Kent, Dover, uh, St. Margaret's Bay, and environs. Also, London, the clubland was very vivid, driving through the streets of London. I found that a really vivid portrayal of of that of, that, of the small geographical area that Fleming is, is, is using in this small amount of time. So I give a half, extra half point for this. Otherwise, not much in terms of the locale, but I do like Blades as well. I was thinking about this now, the Blades situation, and thinking about these as settings. Uh, not necessarily being a city or a country or a region, but also different um, areas of the city, like Blades, for example, um, the pub, the Drax installation, um, down by the sea, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the highway sequence. I'm going to raise it from my initial 3.5 out of 5 to a 4 out of 5. Alrighty, and equipment. The basics, um, the, the the letter case tricks Drax was used was 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 pretty neat. Um, the blowtorch scene um, where they use the blowtorch for torture, the and those gyros saving the day. Bond using like a, 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 a 1911 handgun we never get to see used unfortunately. Um, the Bentley, um, not a lot of uh, uh, gadgets as a whole, but there was some 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 neat use. So and again those gyros saving the day, 3.5 out of five. 3.5. Okay, Josh. Well, that brings you to 8 and 8, 16. 19.5 out of 25 for Moonraker. Which is kind of funny because I know that's probably a lower mark than probably Live and Let Die, but I, even though I kind of enjoyed Moonraker so far of, of most of the novels that we read. Well, I mean, you're looking at it critically, right? Not just as a reader, but, you you know. It's true. It's true. So we'll, um, we'll do a comparison of the scores afterwards. I think maybe when we get... 25% of the way through, which would be nearly, well, it'll be next episode. We can look at uh, where we are with our ranking so far. Absolutely. I've got, I've got them all saved on a spreadsheet anyway. Okay, so for me, adversaries, allies, um, I'm giving this a rating of 4 out of 5. And I, I like the fact that Drax is over the top. I like that he's really our first super sociopathic criminal. I... I'm telling you who gets more marks from me, though, Krebs. I know that he's drawn up in really disgusting... I mean, if, if he's meant to represent the typical German, and unfortunately for this book, it doesn't give us any good impressions of Germans. We only get Nazis. We only get Nazis. But if he's meant to represent the typical, typical German, then it's pretty abhorrent. But anyway, I like Krebs. I like Drax. I think it's fun. I'm going four out of five. It's a good mark, but... I don't really feel like the character does much, Drax. I actually enjoy the scenes with Krebs more. Once I know what Drax is up to, I'm not really as interested in him anymore because the fact... i tell you what put me over the edge. When Krebs jumps on that Bullwaters truck, that's enough <laughs> for me, man. I'm like, yes, this man is in my good books. <laughs> because only a fucking crazy guy would do that. And I think True. he's so committed... He's so committed to the, the, the purpose... And to see, see this thing through. That's why I kind of like this. I, I appreciate that in Krebs too. But at the same time, I think this Drax's master plan I found really cool. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I just think to me, like he, as a villain, uh, he was the forefront and Krebs was his great right hand man. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we're only 0.5 off. Um, I also liked M in this book. I think that he takes on a more interesting role and we're, we're given more about him and we, we get more of the relationship with Bond. 
Uh, Ponsonby didn't do much for me at all. I found it interesting to have that look into how females work at the service, but uh, I'm not quite sure that's accurate because it's Fleming that wrote it. So yes. uh, I'm going four out of five. Narrative, uh, I matched with you. I'm three and a half marks for narrative. I, I enjoyed the story. Uh, the style is good. I didn't think it was particularly better than Live and Let Die. Um, I didn't think that the pacing was quite as good as Live and Let Die. I didn't find this as yeah. a turn page, uh, sorry, a page turner as I did the previous novel. No, Live and Die is a great page turner. I agree. Yeah. And uh, I felt like I, there was a, a, a sense of purpose to it. That maybe because it was, I know that Moonraker has a lot more at stake. Basically, everybody could have been napalmed and live and let die, and the world wouldn't have mattered. It would have kept going. Who cares about Surprise Island? Who gives a shit about Bond and Doc and Mr. Big, right? Nobody gives a shit. But the stakes are much higher in Moonraker, but the stakes were personal in Live and Let Die. And I yes. felt that that motivated the story a little more interestingly for me. That's, that's definitely true. Yeah, Live and Let Die, you have what happened to Felix. Um, and you have like the connection with Bond and Solitaire and Bond himself. And, you know... And that whole sequence too, like the suspenseful sequence of the keel hauling scene, you know, compared to like, I kind of like the idea of them like hiding away and then going back and then screwing Drax over by changing the gyros. I found there was a bit of suspense to that part for sure. But I also found that the whole radio sequence thing, the TV radio sequence thing kind of took a bit of the, put a bit kind of a satirical edge to the moment. It did. And, yeah. and I, I just didn't find that as compelling as the live and let die climax. Uh, no, but the, the style of this book. Um, just getting back to my my three five, the style of the book I found was quite similar. Nice descriptive moments in here. I've highlighted and didn't talk about a great number of nice moments of writing. Uh, I I liked as I I think I have cited the way the structurally Drax's words and his speech send uh, sort of reflect his nervousness. I like that. I, there's there's a good writer in here. There really is a great writer in here, but. Um, the story was just okay for me. It was okay. So three, five out of five. Girls, uh, I think I've made myself pretty clear on how I find Gala's uh, inconsistencies, the way she's written. I don't find her a convincing agent. Uh, and, uh, you know, a convincing agent would still find Bond attractive, but not swoon in the moments of importance. She would wait until she had an opportunity. Um, that's no. true. That, that's true. He breaks her shell pretty easily. Yeah, that's for sure. He does, and I, I didn't find that convincing. Um, I, I would have still enjoyed to read about her and read her character at work, if she was something else, doing something else. And I'm not saying something more gender specific. I'm not Ian Fleming. I'm saying, you know, if Fleming feels this way about women, why the fuck did he give her such an important role in the special branch? That's what I can't figure out. Plot device. Yeah, well, plot device. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, so I'm giving girls three. Loelia Ponsonby didn't do much for me either. So three out of five for me there. Locations, I also went three out of five. Just a touch more um, <clears throat> unsympathetic than you were about the British locales. I loved the blade scene. Uh, I liked Drax's office scenes. We didn't get much of the estate, but I liked the office and kind of the shower next to the office and the desk and all of the sort of instruments of detection around those internal spaces I quite liked. Um, the Moonraker hangar itself was quite cool. The Cliffs, yeah. of, Dover, the cl the cliffs of Dover were cool, but I didn't really, uh, I didn't really care much for, for that. Um, much more than that, really. So three, three is a passable mark, and that's kind of where I am with that. As for equipment, 
Um, the one thing that stood out in this story for me in terms of equipment was the Bentley Mark IV. I thought, Bentley, I, th- uh... I, th- I thought that Fleming went to great distance to try to make it a big deal here, the way Bond drives it, the way Bond is in touch with it. The goggles, uh, the goggles, the the windscreen that comes down so that he can he can he can work better, you know, pushing the the, the hairpin turns at ninety miles an hour, which is almost impossible to do for anybody. But he kind of justifies it by saying that once Bond was thinking about being a race driver, um, the lighter case is really incidental. Uh, I don't read much into that. The blowtorch was cool; it was cool, but the Moonraker itself is a really cool thing. I thought that using the exhaust um, ports as a means of destruction was quite interesting. And the steam gun, I like the steam gun. I'm going 3.5 on equipment. And um, the rolls of paper, even, I, I like those. Of course, the, the bull water. The bull, when the, uh, they fell water. off the truck. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And it was a, lot, inventive. Yeah, a lot is made of the Mercedes and of the, the Bentley Chase. I, I thought those were well-written moments, and I like the equipment there. So I'm going 3.5 out of that. So what have I got? I got seven and four is 11 and six, 17. I'm 17 out of 25 for Moonraker. That's my ranking. Okay. So 19 for me and 17 for you. Very good. Yeah. And I think that kind of reflects what we're, we're saying. We both enjoyed it. You just enjoyed it a little bit more than I did. Yeah, I think so. I think we're in the same, we're kind of in the same sphere anyway. Anything you want to say about Moonraker as we close shop? I think we I think we pretty much exhausted uh, um, that particular um, book. Now I think we you know we we dealt with it and what we have and like we said I mean there's all little faucets that you can pick up as you read the book and uh, we don't want to spoil them all for you but these are kind of the points that we kind of fell on and what we liked about the storyline and what we didn't like about it and uh, different agreements that you'll have in terms of context and both at the time period that it was written and in the modern day and uh, I think it's, it holds up as a really good thriller um and definitely a really good train ride read as one of that or airplane ride as one of the critics said for certain yeah don't don't leave for a train ride without him yeah don't leave don't leave for a train ride without it absolutely um but i I think that too in in this you know in our in our our kind of our very quick consumption culture it it would be more of a praise more so uh than it was back then too so i think you're right well josh bfg it's been fun Uh, I've enjoyed doing this little tour with you, and I really look forward to episode four on Diamonds are forever coming up soon. Take me once more around the world. (laughs) Okay, no problem. (laughs) 